Hi, everyone. This is Javier, your host here at the Restore Podcast. We would love to hear your thoughts about the Restore Podcast topics, guests, your favorite episodes, or whatever you may want to let us know. And I am so happy to announce that now you can do that simply by texting us by going to the show notes. There, you will see a link that simply says, send us a text message. Click on it. Don't remove the number there that you will see and simply send us a text. Simple as that. So don't wait. Go to any episode show notes and text us now. Let us know your thoughts. We can't wait to hear from you. God bless. Welcome to Restore, a podcast seeking to restore the vision, restore the mission, restore the church. And now your host, Javier Diaz. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Restore Podcast, Episode 20. I am Javier, your host. It's hard to believe 2017 is almost over. I want to thank you all for listening throughout the year. I hope and pray the stories, themes that we've shared throughout the year have been a catalyst and inspiration that will help you or has helped you restore the vision, restore the mission, restore the church. Please continue to share and subscribe if you haven't already. And if you got a moment, please leave a comment. That's always helpful for the podcast. With that said, I can't wait to share with you this year's last released episode. In just a moment, you will hear an interview I did with Pastor David Ashrick. He is currently the pastor of the Kingscliff Church in beautiful Australia. For some time, David has been one of the most well-known names within the Seventh-day Adventist community of faith. In this interview, we cover how he got started, his time as a public evangelist, his first, his first pastoral stint in Michigan, and then how things are going for him now at his current uh, church in Australia. First, I want to thank David for his time and transparency throughout this interview. Though it is a long interview, I encourage you to listen to it all the way through. You will not want to miss any part of it, and I know that you will be blessed and challenged by what you hear. And so, without further ado, here is my conversation with Pastor David Asherick. David, I want to thank you so much for joining us here at the Restore Podcast. Thank you, my friend, for taking up your time. It's great to be here. Thank you, Javier. Absolutely. Well, hey, uh, David, I've, I've, um, I want to tell you a little story before we, as we start here. You know, about, about 20 years ago, I was... Um, Coming back to God, had a big uh, conversion story, and um, I was hanging around a friend named Angel at the time, and haven't seen him, haven't spoke to him for a while, went to college with him. But anyways, at that time, he tells me during our small group time, we were in this small group, and we're all just on fire for the Lord, and and um, he says, hey, you have to listen to this tape, tape, David, tape, tape. Um, and we said, okay, so in the small group. <laughs> He plays this tape, and it's of this this guy named David Asherick, and he's got this incredible story, and he's coming back to God. He's a young guy himself. And anyways, um, I think you had been in Orlando um, speaking and um, giving your testimony, and you know during that you know time. And so you know you you've been around for a while, my friend. It's been a, well, at least twenty years, and um, our community of faith knows you pretty well. But for those who may listen who don't, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us how you how you came, uh, you know, to God. How you became a pastor in the U.S. and now how you ended up pastoring in beautiful Australia. Well, I became a follower of Jesus when I was 23 years old, 
I was a strong vegan vegetarian and really passionate about uh, environmental issues and social issues and animal rights issues. And as a purple-haired, straight-edge punk rock kid, uh, there was a vegetarian restaurant that opened up in our town, vegan vegetarian restaurant called, uh, unimaginatively enough, Veggies. <laughs> and I went to that restaurant. It was owned by this really strange, really weird people, but they were so friendly, so nice. Uh, they were very wholesome. They were like something straight out of Little House on the Prairie. I mean, they looked like quasi-Amish people. But uh, our little punk rock community, we just grew to love these people. There was a sort of movement of vegetarianism sweeping through the punk rock scene at the time. And so we were Freddie, owner of the rest, the owners were Seventh-day Adventist Christians. And I'd never heard of a Seventh-day Adventist before. I was not a follower of Jesus. I was probably agnostic, somewhere between agnostic and just ambivalent about religion. But these people were friendly, they were hospitable, they were funny, they were loving. And over the course of about two years, uh, they just befriended me and my, my community of friends, and we befriended them. And uh, when I left to go away to school at the age of 23, I was going to university there locally. And then when I went away at, at excuse me, at 22, to the University of Wyoming, uh, they gave me a book a book called The Great Controversy. Hmm. And uh, I had no intentions of reading that book, but I took it out of a courtesy to them. They had taken the time to write on the inside. You know, we, we've enjoyed getting to know you over the last couple of years, and we think you'll like this book, et cetera, et cetera. So I kept the book kind of as a souvenir more than anything. And uh, then one day, uh, in a time of difficult personal, emotional uh, situation, I picked up the book and began to read it. And literally within just a matter of weeks, I had read the book. It's about a 700-page book. And my whole life turned upside down. I went from being disinterested or ambivalent toward religion to being fascinated by the Bible, fascinated by Jesus, fascinated by church history. And in very short order, from about, uh, I probably started reading the book in October of 95, by June of 96, on the 6th of June, in fact, June 6, 96, I was baptized as a follower of Jesus, and that's how I came to be a follower of Jesus, was basically befriended by this community of Seventh-day Adventist vegetarians that were just amazing people. They were just, they were just some of the coolest people I'd ever met. Wow. So these, these people just, as, as strange-looking as you mentioned that they were, nonetheless, they were lovingly strange people, um, above all. And uh, it seems that book, The Great Controversy, really was a, a what helped you along with the people. But it seems that that, that book w really was part of that catalyst that kind of um, catapulted your mind and your heart um, to draw closer to God, draw closer to the Bible. Is that fair to say? 100%. It, 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 but it was the book in combination with the relationship. For example... If I had just gone in on the first day and they had given me that book, I would have been totally ambivalent toward it. If they had been unkind or snobby or standoffish and they had given me a book, I would have thrown it immediately in the trash. It was, it was the fact that over the better part of two years, I was in their restaurant, I was eating their food, uh, I was asking them questions. Why do you 
dress this way? Why do you speak this way? Why do you call everybody brother and sister? Why do you keep Sabbath? Why aren't you open on Saturdays? You know, all of this. And then they would ask me questions about skateboarding and about punk rock. In fact, they even came to one of my punk rock shows. Mm. I invited them to come to one of the punk rock shows that I was performing at. And um, they were like, we'll make you a deal. We'll totally come to one of your punk rock shows. Will you come to a Vespers service? At, at my house when basically this is Mary saying this at her house. And I was like, yeah, of course. So they came to one of my punk rock shows and it was really quite funny because here were these like little house on the prairie looking, you know, uh, people standing across the back, about eight of them or six of them, I think. And here I'm performing, you know, in my, with my band at this little uh, cafe called the atomic cafe, about 150 to 200 like full on punk rock kids there. And here's the like, you know, Laura Ingalls Wilder crowd across the back. <laughs> and uh, I, 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 that made such a powerful impression on me that they came to hear my punk rock music. And they, and they were so totally different than the people that were there. Mm. But relationally, they were amazing. They mingled freely with these people. They mingled freely with us. I mean, many of us were going to their restaurant anyway. So they knew a lot of us by first name. Yeah. But I tell you, yeah. man... Javier, that spoke volumes to me. And then, so I went to their little Vesper service and they had this super out of tune piano and they were singing Blessed Assurance and Power in the Blood and all these songs I didn't know, but just about 20 or 30 of them gathered around a piano and this woman was playing the life out of this piano, just smashing it to pieces and just, they were singing with energy. And, and I know this will sound crazy to some people, but to me, it was very punk rock in the sense that it was really organic. It was really emotional. It was really powerful, just an organic musical experience. And even though the music genres and the music styles were totally different, it was just real people in a room creating music. And that's what the punk rock community was to me. And so in, in really fascinating ways that some people might think are completely, you know, completely paradoxical, the, the, fact that they were so different worked really well because we were so different as punk rockers, purple hair, blue hair, piercings, tattoos. So they were different and we were different and that was cool. And they were in the music and we were in the music and they were totally different kinds of music. We were from opposite ends of the sort of musical spectrum, but it worked. And if it hadn't been for their authenticity, their hospitality, their friendliness, when they gave me that book, I would have had no interest in it but that as I say was almost like a like a souvenir of a relationship it was like a, a token of our relationship and about a year after they gave it to me actually it wasn't quite that long several months after they gave it to me I started reading it all of all of the people that they were which I now know was Christ shining through them at the time I didn't know that it was right. the Holy Spirit it was Jesus shining through them they were they were in touch with a power that is above and beyond them it was a power of love, a power of acceptance, a power of grace. And something about them was so amazingly attractive that it made the truth that I was reading about in the book all the more attractive because I'd seen that truth incarnationally. I'd seen that truth in flesh, in people. And uh, it was, just, I say, just a matter of months before I myself um, made the transition from purple haired punk rocker to baptized Seventh-day Adventist. June 6, 1996, was baptized 
actually just in the little stream that flows behind the house that I first sang those best first songs in. Wow. Beautiful. Man, that's just, um, you know, I've, again, I've heard part of that, of your story before, um, and mentioning this one as well, but I appreciate you taking the time to really dive into the aspect that it really all started on the basis of a relationship, you know, too often, at least within our community of faith. And I don't want to knock anybody, but you know, they go and they knock on doors and they give a book and everything. And that's great. And there's a space for that. But your story kind of reminds us in a big way that a huge difference is in that relational experience that when you read the book, you mentioned there that um, it, it just you would not have read the book in the same way if these people would have not acted in the way that they did. So I really want to thank you for expounding on that. Um, but you also mentioned that things began to happen r very quickly. So how did you go from punk rocker converted? convinced about Jesus to on a stage speaking about Jesus? Oh, man. So that's a great question. So I went to um, this thing that was doesn't really function anymore called Black Hills Mission College of Evangelism. It was basically a little three-month Bible school that was located in right in the same town that I was in, Rapid City, South Dakota. Mm -hmm. And it was run by a, a fellow named Pastor Louis Torres, just a wonderful man of God who I actually just saw recently up here at, at uh, the North New South Wales Conference ministers meetings. And he had his own fascinating story. Um, he was a bass player for Bill Haley and the Comets. He'd had a similar story as a young man. He'd come to faith. And he was, I think when I met him, he was probably in his late 50s or mid 50s. And he just opened up this little school, and the school was like a discipleship training evangelism school. Again, I was a brand new believer, fresh, still wet from my baptism. And somebody said, hey, why don't you go to that school? So what I did is I took a year off of university. I was studying pre-med at the University of Wyoming. I decided to take a year off just to learn more about the Bible, more about Jesus, and go to this little school that was about three and a half months. Mm -hmm. So I went to that school. And then I still had another several months before the school, ter school term resumed at the University of Wyoming. So I, um, I went to do Bible work, which was something I'd never heard of before, but apparently it was just giving Bible studies. So I started doing Bible work in Oakland, California, of all places. Mm. So there was a team of us, about six of us from the school that went out to Oakland, California. We lived there for several months in Grand, in the Grand Avenue, Seventh-day Adventist Church. I mean, I can't even explain how crazy all this is because, like I say, I was a fresh believer. I was a total punk rock kid, punk rock, skateboarding, wild man. And within very short order, I mean, snap, 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 I'm now living in a church in downtown Oakland, hmm. walking around the streets knocking on doors, giving Bible studies. And it was at that moment that I began to think, you know what? I love this. I love telling people about the goodness of God. I love telling people about the truthfulness of scripture. I, I think that this might be what I'm supposed to be doing. Hmm. So I then took another year off, did another year of Bible work. And at the end of that year, I was given the opportunity to preach a series of evangelistic sermons at a little local church called Shingle Springs, California church. And, um, the church was small. I mean, like the size of your living room, maybe twice the size of your living room, beautiful little church there in the foothills of, uh, California. 
and there was probably 25 people that regularly attended the church, and they wanted the conference evangelists to come in, but the conference evangelist, Brent Brousset, was preaching at a bigger church. He said, hey, I've got this idea. I've got this young guy that's been doing Bible work for a year and a half. Why don't you let him preach the meetings? And I'll never forget, they had this like board meeting and they're like, oh, do we want to settle for this Bible worker? And some of them were saying, I, I learned this later. Some of them were saying, oh, well, we might never get the big time conference evangelists to come. So something is better than nothing. And <laughs> they voted to have me come and preach. And uh, I preached not even my own sermons, man. I just took the sermons from Louis Torres, Doug Batchelor, an evangelist named Kim Kerr. And... Um, I just basically took their sermons and preached through, I think it was 28 sermons in this little country church. And this was just about two years after I was converted to Christ. And to everyone's astonishment, including my own, especially my own, at the end of that meeting, 17 people made decisions to be baptized wow. and become followers of Jesus and members of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And uh, that was when it was like, okay, well, I, I think this is what God has created me to do. I think this is what God has made me to do, to, to preach the good news. And uh, that's, that's the beginnings of my pastoral ministry, my preach ministry, my evangelistic ministry. And uh, after that, I held another meeting, again, a small country church in California. Actually, this was on the outskirts of Sacramento, Rancho Cordova. Um, another 17 people were baptized. And, uh, then the big meeting was actually right there where you're at in Florida. Mm -hmm. My third ever evangelistic meeting took place in 1999. So again, this is just less than three years after I was baptized. This took place in April or no, excuse me. It was in August of 99. So just over three years after I was baptized into Christ, we held a meeting in a tent in Apopka, Florida. Mm -hmm. and to mm -hmm. everyone's astonishment, something like 200 people were baptized in that meeting. I don't remember the exact number, like 180 or 190 or something, but it was close to 200 people. The conference didn't know what to do. ASI, which was the sponsoring organization, didn't know what to do. I don't know what to do. We had three weddings. We had a, a 200 baptisms. I mean, people were just been living together in relationships. They wanted to get married. We had wedding after wedding after wedding. And people were coming to repentance, people were coming to faith, people were coming to the church. It was like a full-on revival, Javier. I'm not kidding. Like, it was a total hmm. old-school revival. And the preacher was this, how old would I have been? 26-year-old, uh, new, non-theologically trained, you know, punk rock skateboarding whippersnapper of a kid. Yeah, And uh, yeah. that was where things really started to cascade and take off. That meeting in which nearly 200 people were baptized was a complete game changer in our ministry. And then we went on to hold another large set of meetings in Atlanta and another large set of meetings in Grand Rapids. And you fast forward, I preached lots of evangelistic meetings between 1999 and 2002. And then in 2002, we took a call to pastor a local church after the birth of our first son mm -hmm. in Michigan. Okay. And that's how I got into pastoral ministry. So anyway, uh, that was condensing a lot into a into a reasonably short answer. No, no, I I really appreciate that. And I and I so it was a little less than twenty years ago because the tape that I heard I still can't believe I'm saying the word tape, but the tape that I heard uh, was from those meetings in Apopka in '99, uh, as you mentioned, most likely if I if I recall correctly. 
Um, and so, so you're this young 20, mid 20 year old, uh, preacher converted. You're on fire. Everywhere you go, there seems to be fire burning. Uh, your, your name begins to be very popular within our community of faith. Uh, people are touched, hearts are converted. Then you go from being the, the, the guy on the stage consistently to pastoring a church. Now, um, as a pastor and as a person who's done public evangelism as well, um, there's nothing like pastoring a church. Maybe I'm biased in that sense. And so it's different than just going from place to place to place to place and preaching. And sometimes, to be honest, preaching the same sermons, which is fine. People haven't heard it. People are touched. So how did it feel for you to to begin pastoring a church as opposed to uh, preaching in different locations? Well, it was, a, as you say, it was a significant, massive transition. Um, you know, props to the Michigan Conference and Jay Gallimore and the team there for taking a risk on me. I mean, they took a big risk, really. I mean, I was, let's see, 2000. I would have been a believer at that point, six years. I came with me, a full team of, of my evangelists, my Bible workers that traveled with me. So these are people like Daniel Mesa, Nathan Renner, Justin White, Jason and Grace Logan. These people, uh, Christian Hoday. In fact, in fact, fascinatingly, just as a little backstory there, Nathan was uh, converted to Christ through that same vegetarian restaurant. He's, to this day, a pastor in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. He loves Jesus very much. He, he, he's an amazing pastor. He's fact, in fact, he's one of my top three favorite preachers in the world. Um, Christian Hoday came to faith through that vegetarian restaurant, and he is now still a pastor in the Michigan Conference. Mm. Justin and Ginger White came to faith through that vegetarian restaurant, and Justin was a pastor for a number of years. Um, so just from that little vegetarian restaurant, there were five people, myself included, that went into full-time pastoral ministry, and three of those five people continue in pastoral ministry to this day. That's amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. That, that is pretty amazing, an amazing story. Um, so when you started there— So the Michigan Conference took a big yeah. So, so the Michigan Conference took a big risk because they hired not only me, they hired Daniel, they hired Nathan, they hired Justin, they hired Jason. So all of us were either the preacher and or the Bible workers from our little evangelistic team that was traveling around for those years between 1999 and 2002. So we had like three years of evangelistic ministry in the Michigan Conference after we held a very successful meeting in Grand Rapids, Michigan. The Michigan Conference just was like, hey, we'll hire you guys. So we were making, I mean, it's, it's amazing. We were making like $1,000 a month. And I'll tell you a story that I don't tell publicly very often. So we would travel to these meetings that we would hold, and we would sell cassette tapes mm -hmm. or VHS tapes. And we would sell them for $3 a cassette, $5 for a VHS tape, and the whole series for like $100 or something. And Javier, I kid you not, God in heaven is my witness, that we made so much money selling those cassette tapes that at one point I was traveling with a briefcase with like $40,000 in cash mm. just from selling mm. these tapes. And I would use that money by the grace of God. We never, we never misspent a penny of that money. I would use that money to pay my Bible workers a thousand dollars a month. If they were a couple or $800 a month, if they were a single, and we would use that money to supplement the evangelistic budgets of the inviting 
churches and conferences that would have us. I mean, it was literally, we're just a bunch of teenage kids. I know it sounds crazy, but it was very punk rock. It was very organic. It was very, it was just like, do it yourself. That's a big part of the punk rock movement is what they call the DIY ethic. Just do it yourself. Like we, we didn't ask anybody permission. We just did it. And churches started inviting, conferences started inviting, and we would sell cassettes and we would make money. And I just take that money as the preacher. And I just put that money into this red briefcase that I had. <laughs> and uh, at one point there was literally approaching $50,000. It was like 47,000 was the most we ever had in there. And I'm driving around with this thing in my car. And that's the money that we use to fund our evangelistic ministry. Wow. So now when, you the mission, guys, when the mission you conference guys. hired us, they took a big risk, man. I mean, God bless them. <laughs> Cast off to Jay Gallimore and Fred Earls and Lauren Nelson and Royce Name And those guys, man, they so, took a big risk hiring a bunch of crazy people. But praise the Lord, the risk has turned out really well. Did, uh, did you guys not believe in a bank during that time? <laughs> well, it's funny. We 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 had to because we had a team of about six Bible workers. We were constantly having to. I mean, like if you're living on a thousand dollars a month, um, you know, we also paid expenses. So, like when we would all get to a gas station, I would just use that money to fill up all of our cars with gas. Okay. If we needed food, we would just use that money to buy food. So, having it was very easy just to have it. You know, that was sort of before. Um, you know, ATMs and right. debit cards. I mean, those things were still, they were probably around, but it was, those were the days of checkbooks. Right, right. And it was pain in the behind. So we just literally had cash and we just used that money to fund our ministry. And so when the opportunity came to be hired by the Michigan Conference, and this was like legit now, like making a real salary that was actually livable and having an actual home. I and mean, we were living out of our cars, mate. Like we're living out of our cars. And when we would get to the towns, mm. we would just live in the houses of church members. And by that point, Nathan and Becky had a child and uh, their child was born in Grand Rapids. Our child was born at an evangelistic meeting. Our first child landed in Atlanta. And it was just getting increasingly difficult with traveling with young children, living out of a car, staying in church members' homes. I mean, it was radical, man. I mean, it was even more radical than I'm making it sound. Like, we were so sold out for the gospel. We were so sold out for Jesus. We were so sold out for the message of scripture. I mean, we thought Jesus was coming like soon, very, very soon. So we were just putting it all on the line, man. We just put it all on the line. We were happy to live on peanuts, travel around as like a little community of faith. And those people today are still some of my best friends in the whole world. Those people that I did evangelistic ministry with for three years. That's an incredible story, David. Um, just I, I, I could just picture that, you know, I can just picture you just getting this red uh, briefcase and, and just pulling out, you know, bills to pay for for things. And um, man, I'm, I'm glad you had your little posse there to you know protect you, because I mean, I'm sure you guys weren't always in the best of you know neighborhoods, um, especially in the in, you know, Michigan or wherever you were at Atlanta. Um, so praise God that he blessed you guys. He guided you guys. You pastored there in, you know, Michigan. But let me let me kind of take a little bit of a of a road there. When you said how you guys were young, you guys were still developing, still learning. Um, yet God was, you know, using you. Um, Twenty years later, before we, I want to get back to the pastoring, but let's put that on hold just for a second. Twenty years later, how how have your views changed? Um, 
I heard you say one time in a podcast, as a matter of fact, a while back, that when you look at yourself on, because obviously they can YouTube you, if whoever may be listening and perhaps first time hearing of you, uh, they're going to go and they're going to YouTube you and they're going to see tons of sermons of you in your nice suit uh, 15, 20 years ago. And in that podcast, I, I heard you say that sometimes when you listen to yourself, like, you know, many of us, of your sermons many years ago, you kind of cringe of 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 some of the things you said, perhaps how you said them. Uh, so with that in mind, um, how have your views, you know, changed regarding preaching, regarding preaching the end of times, you know, Daniel, Revelation, uh, pastoral ministry, discipleship? I know that's a loaded question and even the church, but um, just putting it out there. So how do you feel that things have changed from that time, a you know, punk rock type of living in a Christian lifestyle to 20 years later now, your kids are grown and you're living in Australia, pastoring a, a pretty progressive church. So talk to me about that. Man, that's, a, that's a, such a big question. I could talk for hours about that, but I'll just sort of summarize a few things. In many ways, and people are, are maybe surprised to hear me say this, in many ways, I've not changed at all in terms of my absolute passion for scripture, my passion for the soon return of Jesus, my passion for the uh, winning of, of uh, the evangelistic winning of souls, um, Bible work. Um, we actually started a school uh, in Michigan called Arise. I still run that school to this day in partnership with Lightbearers and the conference here in Australia. So in, in many ways, David Ashrick is the same guy that he was back then, preaching hour-long sermons with all of his energy, when the sermon's done, I'm a sweaty mess. I actually just had a guy come to my church this last Sabbath. Emmanuel's his name, Emmanuel Beck, lovely guy. And uh, he was in Sydney, and he drove all the way up here, eight hours uh, drive, just to come up to be in my church on Sabbath to hear me preach. He's a preacher himself. He's an evangelist. And uh, he drove up here just he wanted to see my local church. We had a really lovely meeting together, and he wanted to hear a good sermon. Praise God, it was a good sermon that week, it was just this last Sabbath. Okay. And... Um, it's really funny. He said to me, he said, man, you sweat like crazy. He said, I've never seen anybody put as much energy into their preaching as you do. He said, I had no idea. Like, you know, it's one thing to hear it on a tape. It's another thing to see it live. And man, I was a, especially here in Australia, it's magnified by humidity and the heat. Mm -hmm. But he just, he just couldn't believe. He's like, man, I cannot believe how sweaty you were. It's true. I mean, like when I'm done, I got to go take a shower when I'm done preaching most of my sermons. So in many ways, I'm that same guy. I'm the guy that gets up. And by the way, fun, funny enough on that, that's why I don't wear suits anymore. <laughs> People think I'm making some big strong statement about, about suit wearing. It has nothing to do with that. This is a funny story, but it's absolutely true. I used to have to throw my suits away within a year or less because I would sweat so heavily in them that I would have to dry clean them after like every second or third sermon. And or they would just stink like B.O. And uh, it just got to the place where it was just silly. It was just a waste of money dry cleaning. and It was a waste of money buying new suit jackets. So the reason that I don't wear suits anymore has nothing to do with some profound statement about being casual or whatever. It was just I just sweat like crazy when I preach and my suits started to smell like body odor. <laughs> I know it sounds crazy, but it's true. Oh, wow. So you feel like. Nothing's changed. I mean, obviously, 
when it comes to, as you mentioned, your passion, your belief system, nothing's changed. Would you have changed anything? Like when you listen to previous sermons, maybe the way you said it, how you said it, how you preached it, maybe your focus, you know, sometimes we focus more on certain things instead of focusing more on Jesus, like things like maybe the signs or, or I don't know, whatever that may be um, when it comes to preaching, you know, so has nothing changed? Do you feel like, hey, it's the same? No, I think, I think lots of things have changed. Um, but the things that have changed would be emphasis, nuance, content, and I think just textual, exegetical, expositional maturity. I, I just think that, like, for example, you know, because I didn't go through any um, proper theological training, right? My, my education was in biology. That was, I was going into a pre-med program. I wanted to be a doctor. So biological studies and chemistry and, and anatomy and physiology, that was my thing. So I've, I've never had any proper theological training. I've read oodles and oodles of books, and I'm a very self-motivated person. Mm -hmm. But it took a while to accumulate that knowledge, right? Like, so when I came fresh in and preached that first evangelistic meeting there in Shingle Springs, California, I was like, like 1997. I mean, again, I, I was only a believer for 18 months. Right. And then even when I preached in Florida in 99, I would have been a believer for three years. And then when I took the church in Michigan, that was 2002, that was like six years in. So it just took time to familiarize myself with the depth of Scripture, the profundity of Scripture, the context of Scripture, the story and narrative of Scripture, and above all else, Javier, the radical Christocentricity of Scripture. Mm, mm. I would say that my, my preaching before was, my preaching before was, uh, maybe a really good word to use for it would be compartmentalized or, or fragmented even. Uh, fragmented, I don't like that word, segmented. So, so, for example, if I preached a 28-part evangelistic meeting, okay, I would preach on everything from angels to the second coming to what happens when you die to all of it. You know, you're preaching on all these sort of topics. And one of those topics would be salvation, mm -hmm. right? You have, so you have one of your topics is on Jesus. Now, just let that settle in. You know, you're preaching 28 evangelistic meetings. Right. You're preaching them with all the passion that you can muster and with the biblical knowledge that you have at the time. You know, you, we, we can never be more than what we are at that moment. And at that moment, that's who I was. I was, I was convinced about the message of Scripture. I was convinced about the Sabbath. I was convinced about the soon second coming. So a lot of my early preaching was very apologetic, very argumentative, not like in the sense of being a jerk, but just very evidence-based and case-based and, and proving in a doctrinal way and in a, in a evidentiary way, almost like a lawyer would argue for a brief hmm. where when I came to know scripture, not just as a series of propositions, but I came to see the heart of scripture, right? Jesus said in John chapter five, verse 39, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. I mean, Jesus could have just as easily been speaking to me in 1996, 1997, 1998, 1999, 2000, 2001, 2002. I mean, he, he could have been saying those words to me. David, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. But there's a story there. Hmm. And the story is about me. And that was just like the dawning of, of the sun, just like the sunrise. You know, you begin to see first the pinks. You know, it's dark. It's black. Then, you know, there begins to be a, a glow. And then that glow begins to take on the, the colors, first the, the blues and then the pastels and then 
the pinks and then the pinks start to give way to oranges and then then the oranges begin to give way to reds and then all of a sudden you have this glorious yellow ball that's sitting on the horizon right so that's why when people ask me what's changed i i could not point to any moment to any instance to any punctiliar event in which that was the moment that was the situation no for me it was the it was the rising of the sun it was a continuum and it was happening in the only way it could happen and that was incrementally we were all products of the incremental cumulative acquiring of knowledge not just biblical knowledge or theological knowledge but a knowledge of walking with jesus talking with jesus having answered prayers seeing miracles happen making mistakes learning from those mistakes you know there's an old saying that says you can't expect young heads on old shoulders Hmm. neither can you expect young shoulders and old heads you know these two go together and i was a young head on young shoulders Hmm. and then over time you know after the birth of my second child in 2002 and and then i'm pastoring a church which as you know totally stabilizes you right it forces you to be more sensitive to think long term, not just I'm in this town for eight weeks and I've got to get as many decisions for Jesus as I can, but you're thinking, and I ended up pastoring that first church for seven years. Hmm. Well, that's a totally different way of doing ministry. It's not about bread, it's about depth. And that's actually a really good way to think about it. I've never thought of it that way, but my ministry began to change both theologically and pastorally away from bread toward depth. Hmm. Fewer people, longer-term investment. Um, not just preaching sermons, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 9, 10, that are designed to bring about an outcome, i.e. a decision for Jesus, giving up smoking, keeping the Sabbath, whatever it might be, but I'm preaching to grow people and to disciple them, to grow them in the faith, to grow them in their walk with Jesus. You know, it's easy to be the knight in shining armor, right. rise into town, preach a sermon, you know, back to front, everybody loves you, they think you're the best thing since sliced bread, and then you leap town okay well that's easy anybody can do that I don't, I don't mean anybody there is the biblical gift of evangelism but i'm saying that 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 is way easier way 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 easier and i can say this authoritatively because i've done full-time evangelism for about a decade and i've done full-time pastoral, pastoral ministry for over a decade mm-hmm. that being an evangelist is a hundred times easier than being a pastor and i'll mm-hmm. argue that with anybody like anybody, being an evangelist is an absolute piece of cake compared to pastoral ministry. Are there trials? Yes. Are there difficulties? Yes. Are there unique challenges with, you know, uh, itinerant evangelism? Of course there is. But the truth is you get to write in. You get to be only as invested as six or eight weeks lets you be invested. You preach your sermons. You, you baptize people. You leave town. Right. And then the pastor, and you and I know this, is left to sort of pick up the pieces. And I don't mean that in a negative way or a pejorative way, but the pastor's there to train, to disciple, to minister, to counsel, to guide, to help, to educate, right? And that, man, that, at just the right time in my life, after six years of basically full-time evangelism, I started pastoring, and that forces you to read scripture differently. You're not just reading for the purpose of decisions. You're not just reading for the purpose of preaching thematic evangelistic sermons. You have to read the story of scripture, the narrative of scripture, the thrust of scripture. These are they which testify of me. And bro, that was a game changer for me. It was the rising of the sun. I had to become a better Christian. I had to become a better father. I had to become something that's 
more challenging, more trying. And that, by that time, I was, you know, 30 years old in my early 30s, and I had to become a pastor. Hmm. And uh, that's the change. That's in a sentence, and I know that was a lot of sentences. In a sentence, I went from being an evangelist to a pastor who loved evangelism. Hmm. Beautiful. If that, if that makes sense. Oh, no, that. Full-time evangelist. I, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, I know we have a little time lapse there, but I'm just saying, I'm just listening intently and, and, and I can, I can totally listen between the lines, if I can say it that way, of as you're speaking, I can sense in your voice, I can sense in your heart, just kind of retracing those uh, steps to where you are today and how you fell more in love with Jesus. So it's, it's not like you weren't in love with Jesus back in 99, 98, 97, but you fell more in love with Jesus, and Jesus began to open his heart to you through Scripture, through life experiences, people. And, of course, when you pastor, you're doing life with people, um, and people are doing life with you, and you're just in this community. So you begin to experience this as well, and which— Again, not a knock on public evangelism and people going from one place to another, but they experience it differently. And so that, that's what I'm hearing you say, right, is that it's that long term, not just in a local area, but long term in your own experience of digging deeper and deeper and deeper in what Jesus was, you know, meant to you, David. So we, we hear a lot from the stage of what you say. But I'm hearing now what Jesus was doing in your life throughout the last 20 years. Is that is that fair to say? No, that's that's a very good summary. And I, I want to just emphasize on that, that there was never a time where I did not love Jesus with all of my heart. In other words, obviously, we all have our ups and downs and our struggles and the vicissitudes sure. of life. and of ministry. That's not what I'm talking about. There was never a time where I was a legalist because my heart was always pure before God. I always had a passion to serve him, but I was, like Paul says, I had a zeal, but it wasn't always a zeal according to knowledge, right? So, so sometimes people want to sort of paint this picture retroactively, like there was this big transition in David's life or in somebody else's life, but I don't see it that way. I see it on a continuum. I look back at my own life, man, and I was in a continual state from day one, June 6, 1996, to today, I, I have been incrementally, step-by-step, step, learning to love Jesus better and to understand his love for me better. And for me, a major part of that transition was going from bread, lots of meetings in lots of places, to depth. Hmm. Digging it, like you say, digging into a local community, doing life with people. And that requires a different skill set. Frankly, I was terrible at it. I mean, the first... My heart goes out to the Troy Seventh-day Adventist Church there in Troy, Michigan. Like, I hear from them now that they look back with great fondness on my tenure there, my seven-year tenure there. But it, when I look back, it's just like those early evangelistic sermons. I look back and I just cringe. I think, man, I was, I was preaching thematically, but I wasn't always preaching contextually. Mm -hmm. I was preaching enthusiastically, but I wasn't always preaching pastorally or with emotional sensitivity. It, again, you can't expect old heads on young shoulders. Like I was totally sincere in what I was doing. And the same was true with pastoral ministry. The first, you know, two to three years of pastoral ministry, I was just sure that I knew exactly how to pastor a church. I knew I could do it well. I'd been to a lot of churches where I'd met a lot of pastors and I thought, man, I can do this. And looking back, it's like, it's, it's frankly humbling 
and even a little terrifying just how much I had to learn. I had so much to learn, Javier. And praise God for that beautiful little church. They, they grew me. They taught me. They, they were patient with me. They put up with me. They discipled me in many ways. And when I left seven years later in 2009, I was a totally different human being. Hmm. And it's because of, of people like Harry and Earl Morgan and, and Bert Kober and people that, that invested in me. And these were my church members. And even though I was growing them, they were growing me. It was mutual. It's like what Paul says there in Romans 1. You know, I want to come and I want to be a blessing, but I want to receive a blessing. I want to impart a spiritual gift, but I want to receive a spiritual gift. And that happened incrementally. It wasn't a sharp right hand, you know, a right angle turn or a, a sharp left or a sharp right. It was, it was like a, a, a continuum, a, a large sphere. You're, you know, you're always turning, but you're never quite aware of the turn because the turns are so incremental. The changes are so cumulative. You can look back and say, whoa, we've really turned a lot. We've really morphed. We've really changed. We've really grown. Yeah. But at the time, yeah. it never feels like you're making a big shift. You know what I mean? Sure, sure. And, you know, in, in, in full transparency, you know, I've, I've had people come up to me as a pastor, and I've been doing this for a while. And again, within our community of faith, people, again, they know who you are. They've heard you. Many have heard you. And it's good for them to listen to this because I have heard from more than one. And, well, you know, David has changed, right? I, I'm, I'm sure you've heard this as well. He's, you know, changed. He's more, he's more open now. He's more Christ-centered now, which, you know, that's what we're just, you know, talking about. Um, he was a bit more legalistic before. He's less now. And uh, perhaps people are, are saying that or some have said that because, well, you're not wearing a suit anymore. Well, now they know why you're not wearing a suit anymore because you sweat like crazy, just like I do. And so <laughs> it's like many people do. <laughs> so, but um, I, I, th I think in part, some people will listen to this and they'll, they'll, it'll, it'll get them thinking, you know, to what you have to say towards that. Um, did, did, you, did you sense that people over the course of your ministry, probably now, um, particularly now in the last I don't know, three or four years, did you get that sense where people were saying, David used to be this way, now he's this way, David was a little bit more legalistic, now he's less? Did you get that sense, or is that just me and some of the people that were talking to me? No, no, and I'll tell you, and I'll be completely candid here, and this will probably really upset some people, but that's all right, I'm, I'm not afraid to upset people. Um, here's, here's the truth of the matter. On, with regards to my development and my maturation in Christ and in preaching and in my own development, because I've been a fairly public figure from early on in my ministry. I mean, like after we held that evangelistic meeting in Oregon, uh, in Florida, people began to be increasingly aware. I mean, the Adventist Review did a big article on it. I began to be, you know, we recorded the next series of meetings in Atlanta and they became the most watched and most recorded programs on 3ABN, Danny Shelton told me for like four years. So one of the things that is very unique about my development, and I think people don't appreciate this, they don't understand it maybe, is that my development has taken place publicly. Right. Right? Like I went from being, you know, my, when that first evangelistic meeting was recorded in, in Atlanta, this would have been in 2000. Okay, 2000, man. I was baptized in 96. Right. So my, my – my preaching is now, like this is early preaching. Think of the preaching you were doing after having been 
not a graduate of seminary, Javier, but a believer in Jesus right. four so, years later. Fr- from 96 to 2000 was four years. So your first four years that would have been people going to school and seminary was on the stage. You've got it. So check this out. So my development has taken place publicly. People have heard me preaching at various stages where most people don't get that. You know, like like if you take somebody who, uh, let's say, you know, it's a pastor, uh, you know, just a pastor down the street here. Most of his early sermons, especially the sermons like he was preaching when he was in college, whether he was at PUC or Southern or Avondale, those sermons are not broadcasted. Those sermons are not transmitted and, and seen by tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people. So, so my development took place publicly, and for that reason, I think it lent itself to a significant amount of scrutiny. People could say, oh, he sounds different now. Well, yeah, man, in 1990, in, in the year 2000, you know, I was a 27-year-old kid. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I was a 27-year-old kid living out of a pickup truck or living out of a, you know, Jeep Cherokee with my wife and my oldest son. Mm. Now I'm a, you know, 40-year-old pastor with two teenage boys. You know what I mean? Like, of course you're going to change. Your life is going to change. But, but specifically with regard to recent, and this is the thing that might kind of upset some people, the, the two issues, man, and it's so funny. I just had this conversation with Emmanuel in my living room a couple days ago. The two issues that have rallied up people on the right end of the spectrum are the fact that, according to some, I didn't tell the party line on the culturally conservative view of music. Mm-hmm. And number two, that I uh, was favorable to women's ordination. Right. And right. these were like virtual betrayals for some in the conservative, culturally conservative Seventh day Adventist community. These were like, I mean, literally analogous to giving up the Sabbath, analogous to drinking <laughs> alcohol, analogous to, to claiming that the Pope is God's representative on earth. I mean, I, I hate to sound so, so. Uh, strong, but it's true. Like for some people, when I began to speak out about music, I didn't actually really, it was never really a major issue of mine, but I was asked questions about it at a youth conference in Florida mm-hmm. and that began to stir the pot. And then I was asked questions about it at a GYC seminar and that began to stir the pot. And then I went into this, I did this um, dialogue with a guy named Eugene Pruitt and that has been circulated and read by thousands of people. And for some people on the far right end of the spectrum, uh, and by the way, not the far right end of the biblical spectrum, but the far right end of the <laughs> cultural spectrum. Right. You have to make a difference on that. Yes. There are people that are culturally conservative. But in fact, many people who are culturally conservative are not actually biblically conservative. Like the Pharisees of old, they have replaced hmm. biblical fidelity, biblical literacy with a cultural acquiescence or a cultural loyalty. But I want to just say right now, I do not care at all about cultural conservatism of the Seventh-day Adventist variety or the political variety or even the Christian variety. Cultural conservatism means nothing to me. Hmm. Biblical conservatism, biblical fidelity, biblical faithfulness, biblical literacy, absolutely passionate. And what drives me crazy is when people try to say that their cultural conservatism is actually what the Bible says. And on those two issues, you know, women's ordination and music, these are two issues in which I am roundly persuaded that the actual text of Scripture, the actual, the actual data of Scripture comes into direct conflict 
with the cultural conservative perspective hmm. on those issues. And uh, that has definitely been a fascinating thing to watch and from my perspective to live through because I saw how in literally very short order, in just a matter of a year or two, I went from being in the minds of some kind of the spokesperson for conservative Seventh-day Adventism, one of the spokespersons of conservative Seventh-day Adventism, to suddenly being anathema and a liberal and an apostate. And the funny thing is, is that if you ask me any question about anything that is fundamental, scripturally fundamental to Seventh-day Adventism, I have not moved a, a, a centimeter. I've not moved a millimeter. But on those two issues, which are like litmus test issues for certain cultural conservatives, right. they just want to write you off on those two issues. And it's it would be hilarious and funny if it wasn't so terribly sad. Yes. Yes. And I mean, I really appreciate your transparency and just, you know, opening up in regards to that, because I think it'll explain a lot to a lot of people that that may have wondered, you know, because because you're well known, because, again, within our community of faith, you have been front and center. Um, and, you know, honestly, David, the way that you've just um, delineated everything that you just said, I think, I think will really be in the minds of people going, oh, okay. Oh, okay. And, you know, with that said, with, with, with all of what you said there, uh, particularly just growing up in front of people, um, within your spiritual development, you know, how, how have you with, with the large following, I mean, you have a large following on social media, uh, before social media came, people were buying your tapes so much so that I still have this picture of you with the red, uh, uh, with the red suitcase full of money. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, so you, you, I mean, you're so well known with, again, within our community of faith, outside of our community of faith, and now social media has just, you know, propelled you as well. But how do you keep yourself from allowing yourself to, to for all of this? Honestly, I'm just going to be straight honest, you know, straight, you know, forward with you from it getting to your head from from, you know, not from staying. How do you stay humble? How do you stay teachable in regards to all this? You know, um, you you speak of the school arise. We'll get that, you know, you know, in a minute. But I I. I heard like the running joke. I'm going to be honest here. Some people may get mad at me for saying this, but the running joke sometimes was that if you went to a rise, you would come out looking like David Ashrick. I'm sure you never heard that before, right? <laughs> I, I've never heard that, but I love it. I think it's hilarious. So because I guess somebody, we, we saw a lot of people that were trying to imitate you, or at least it seemed that way. And again, um, it's just stuff that, that you hear in ministry and stuff. People were wearing glasses like you were and, and all that kind of stuff. And so, you, you have to have seen all that. And I mean, you're experiencing that. You're going through all that. And again, most of this was years ago. I mean, that is not so much now. Um, so with that said, full circle, how do you keep yourself humble and teachable? I am so glad you asked that question. Well, the, the first and obvious answer is we, we have to be connected to Christ, right? But for the grace of God, there go I, said John Wesley. Like, Absolutely. The truth of the matter is, is Javier, you know who you are. And I know who I am. I don't know who Javier is. And Javier doesn't know who David Asherick is. But David Asherick, to the extent that I have the illumination of the spirit, does know who David Asherick is. And I am well aware of my faults, my foibles, my fragility, my frailties. I know that apart from Jesus, again, in the words of John Wesley, but for the grace of God, there go I. I, 
I know who I am. I know I'm, uh, in other words, you can't believe your own hype. I, I, I hate hype. I hate that whole branding thing, the self-branding. That stuff doesn't appeal to me on any level. And have I been surprised at the influence that God has given to me, the influence that God has entrusted me with? The answer is yes. Hmm. I actually have been surprised. Um, have I been humbled by it? Of course I have been. Um, have I been elevated by it? I don't think so. And, and maybe, maybe I say this with deep humility, maybe the reason that God has given me some of the influence that he has and, and the opportunities that I have is because he knows that I know myself. I, I'm like, you know, in the a great poem there by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who am I, you know, and he yeah. comes to the end of that poem and he says, whatever I am, Lord, I am yours. You know, I don't know if you know that poem, but he talks in there about how certain people perceived him as a as a very wise, a man that steps from his estate, you know, with all the confidence of a squire. And and then he says, but but I see myself as wretched. And and that sort of awareness that what people think you are may not be what you are. Mm, And that's sort of the first part. The first part is you have to know yourself. You have to know that apart from Jesus, you're just dust, right? You're just dust that every influence we have, every talent we have, every gift we have, anything that we have, it's like the text in scripture, of thine own have given thee. So that's sort of number one. And then number two is no less important. And that is this. Javier, I have been absolutely committed from day one to being surrounded by a team. Mm. I am not a lone wolf minister. In fact, it doesn't appeal to me on any level. I've had numerous opportunities over my tenure as a Seventh-day Adventist pastor and evangelist and preacher to lead out in some mega ministry, uh, whether to start something new or to become involved in existing, you know, large media ministries. And I've said no to all of them mm. because I'm not that guy. I'm, I, anybody that actually knows knows that I'm a total team player. I'm a consensus, consensus-based uh, uh, leader. I, I want, you know, you just look at my ministry. I, in the beginning, I was surrounded by a team of Bible workers in Oakland, California. Then I did years of evangelistic preaching, surrounded by that team I was talking about earlier, Justin and Jason and Grace and Ginger and Nathan and Becky and Daniel and, and Julie. I mean, we were a team. We were always, and we, we all knew that none of, we, all, we knew. We were, just, we were just a bunch of kids traveling around the country, preaching the gospel, knocking on doors and winning souls. Then as soon as I got to Michigan, I actually had an arrangement with the Michigan conference where they had to let Nathan Renner, who was my right-hand man and one of my, I actually knew Nathan Renner before he had either, either of us were Christians. Hmm. We, we knew one another back BC before Christ. Right. And uh, he was the first person I ever gave Bible studies to. And he became a follower of Jesus. And today, as I say, he's one of my top three favorite preachers in the world. So I made an agreement with the Michigan conference that he had to be my associate pastor. Mm. So Nathan was my associate pastor. I, I brought in, this is amazing. I brought in um, the very woman, Mary Burke, who owned the restaurant that I was converted in, came in and was our cook and our administrator for the first three years of Arise. Wow. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, and then we hired an associate pastor, Pastor Glenn Heil. So between Glenn, Mary, Nathan, and then uh, our later administrator, David Sherwood, I've always been a part of a team. In in addition to the larger team that I was a part of, at that time, I was a part of the Michigan Conference team, and great things were happening with the ministry called Campus, with Justin Kim and Israel Ramos and P. 
people like Sebastian Braxton. Um, so I've always been a part of a team. We then hired a guy named Matt Parra, came onto the team, and Scott Moore came onto our team. He's a pastor there in Florida, actually. Right. We then moved to California, and we brought on Jeffrey Rosario and Yamil Rosario onto the team. We hired a guy named Randy Van uh, while we were still in Michigan. So here's the point. I could go through all of this. And then uh, probably the climax of this really passionate desire to, to be a team player, to be a part of a community of ministry. In uh, 2011, Lightbearers merged with Arise. Right. Like my ministry, Arise, that we founded, Nathan and I had co-founded in 2002. And people were strongly advising us against it. People were saying, oh, it's a bad idea. You know, you're a strong-minded person, you know, a, a, a strong-willed person. Ty and James are strong-willed people. It's not going to work. But we'd had the hard conversations. We'd sat down and we found, I found out that Ty and James, Ty Gibson and James Rafferty, they're their leadership philosophies were almost identical to my own. They're not the big head honcho. They're not the prima donna that makes all the calls and everybody falls in line. They're very much involved as I was and invested in a flat management style. Everybody comes to the table. Hmm. Everybody comes to the table. You get the whole team to the table. I'm not the smartest person in the room. I'm not the only person in the room. I'm not the holiest person in the room. We're a team. And so when our ministries merged, we brought like six of us from Arise me, Randy, Yamil, uh, Matt, myself, we merged with Lightbearers. We had about 18 employees at the time. And that just took a rise to the next level. It took Lightbearers to the next level. It took our ministries collectively to the next level. So all of that is a long way of saying that I have always been surrounded by people who are absolutely willing and sometimes even a little enthusiastic about holding my feet to the fire. Beautiful. Keeping me accountable. I'm passionate about accountability. I'm passionate about professional accountability, ministerial accountability, just basic Christian uh, accountability in terms of discipleship and mentorship. So I have no desire to be a Lone Ranger. I've never been a Lone Ranger. It, it, even recently, an opportunity has come to me to, to go on my own, do my own thing. And, you know, we've got all kinds of money. We can throw money behind this. It doesn't appeal to me on any level. Mm. I, I have no desire to be that guy. I want to be a part of a team. And when you have a team that's around you, like right here, I've got my associate pastor. I've got an executive pastor. Um, I've got Nat Parra is the director of Arise Australia. I mean, I've got a huge team here. Yeah. I've got Bible workers that work at my church. One, two, three Bible workers in my church. Anyway, I can, I can wax eloquent here, but the short answer is, number one, staying connected to Jesus and knowing what you really are. And don't, de don't deceive yourself about what you actually are. You're a sinner in need of a Savior. And every gift that you have comes straight from the throne of God, from the grace of God. And number two, from day one, I have absolutely been passionate and insistent about surrounding myself with people that I look up to, people that I aspire to be like, people that can absolutely hold me accountable and people that I can hold accountable. And we've grown together. We've matured together. And I have now a wide network of people who either presently work for Arise or who have formerly worked for Arise who are my team, right? And they're not, they're not a part of Team Asherick. They're a part of Team Jesus. I have no desire to be the star of anything. I don't want to be the big number one guy. It, again, I just can't emphasize that strongly enough. That just does not appeal to me on any level. And anybody who knows me knows that that's just not me. Well, Even if you look at like a lot of the seminars I teach, GYC would say, hey, come teach a seminar. I'd be like, yeah, 
I'll co-teach it with Nathan Renner. I'll mm. co-teach it with Ty Gibson. I'll co-teach it with Jeffrey Rosario. That's just my style, Javier. I love to partner. I love to network. One of my favorite things in ministry is to see other people succeed. And if I can lend my influence and my resources to help somebody else succeed, oh man, that to me, that's even greater than succeeding oneself. No, that's awesome. I, I, again, I mean, I, I I am so thankful uh, for what you're saying right now, because what you're saying applies to every pastor, to every, to every one of us. Um, You know, in my role, I, I try to empower and help many pastors as I oversee a certain area here of, of where I'm at, um, you know, churches and pastors and all of that. And all of us have our, our own little platforms. Let's just be honest, right? Every, every pastor has their platform within their local context. But what you just said for yourself, um, if we're honest with ourselves, with myself, applies to me. I, I need to be connected. I need to have accountability around me. Um, and I need to keep and understand who I am. And, and, and I think those three, as you said it, are uh, beautifully stated. And um, again, apply to all of us. So I, I really appreciate you, you know, uh, saying that, explaining that. And I hope that those that are listening, whether they're in a church or outside organization, a business, whatever it, it may be, I think as followers of Jesus, all of those things apply. Brother, I'm so glad to say that. I feel like that is something that we've lost sight of. And I feel like our conferences need to capture a new vision of pastoral teams, not just individual pastors that are overseeing two, three, four, five churches and struggling, you know, absolutely struggling. And many of these people I know, and many of them are my friends. I I envision pastoral teams, ministry teams, and not just pastors, but graphic designers and filmmakers and photographers and writers, ministry teams. I mean, really what we're talking about here is the local church. Right, right. But these teams of ministry, you know, I'm just so passionate about that. I tell my church members, I am no more a minister of the gospel than you are. And I, they, they'll hear me say that so many times they'll get sick of it. Mm. You guys are ministers. My elders are ministers. My deacons are ministers. My deaconesses are ministers. My graphic designers and web designers are ministers. Yes, I'm a minister. And I have a certain gift. And that gifting that God has given to me, I'm trying to use and to exploit for all that it's worth to the glory of God. But I can't, I can't even remember where my car keys are. <laughs> I, can't, I can't find my wallet. <laughs> you know, so I'm not going to be the guy to organize and create effective structures. I who, who's that person? Oh, it's you. Okay, well you're a minister. Yeah, yeah. And what's well, your gifting? Well, you're a minister of the gospel. You're a minister of the gospel. And I, one of the things that really fired me up about the women's ordination conversation was that so many of the conversations missed the boat. We have created a culture unwittingly. We didn't do it on purpose, but we've done it nonetheless. We have created a culture in our community of faith of a differentiation between the so-called clergy and the so-called laity. And to me, this is the greatest tragedy of the whole women's ordination debate and the nature of ordination debate, is that the real issue here is that I think we should be ordaining doctors. I think we should be ordaining nurses. We should be ordaining uh, radiographers. We should be ordaining uh, bankers. We should be ordaining people to their ministry Mm. in whatever capacity Mm. that is. But what we've done is we said, no, ordination, which is, you and I know in the TOS committee completely confirmed this, ordination as we practice it is totally a traditional relic that we have brought over 
from evangelicalism, brought it over from Catholicism, mm -hmm. and there's just nothing to the actual ordination, and especially the way that we're practicing it right now, we're creating a differentiation so that our church feel like they're spectators, not participants. They feel like, in fact, it's fascinating. If you do a study in the writings of Ellen White, one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, if you do a study on her use of the words clergy and laity, she does not use them positively ever. Hmm. Right? In other words, in her mind, these were non-existent distinctions. This was an artificial distinction that separates the paid professional mediatorial clergy from the, you know, peasant, bystander, observer, parishioner. Yeah. She doesn't buy it at all. In fact, the only statement that I'm aware of where she actually speaks about those two things favorably is she makes this fascinating statement where she says, only when the, the laity and the clergy unite will the work of God be finished on earth. And so to me, it was a fascinating study to go and see that laity, that's not, that concept is not biblical. Yeah. And clergy, I'm convinced that that is a biblical concept or it's a biblical construct. I tell my ministers, you are a minister. And, and if I'm a minister and you're a minister, we have instantaneous accountability because we are not now looking up or down at the other. We're looking across and we're both looking up at Jesus. So, so David, how, how have you, with that said, it's a perfect transition here. How have you implemented that philosophy, that uh, belief, right? And I, th I think we're on par with that um, at Kingscliff, which is currently where you're pastoring there in beautiful Australia, which by the way, I've never gone. So if you want to invite me, I'd love to go anytime. And yes, I am inviting myself. Who would not invite themselves to go to Australia, right? So um, <laughs> you're welcome to come. Standing invitation. I'll, hallelujah. I'll, I'll find a point for you. We'll get you over here. Uh, all right. I love that. Now I really, hey, we can just finish up the, the episode right here. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Until next time. No, not yet. Not yet. Hold on. I got to catch you. You're, you're a hard guy to get a hold of, but once we get a hold of you, I love this. This is awesome. And so at King's Cliff now, with everything you just said, um, how are you leading that church? Because th this is what I'm hearing. Discipleship, right? In different ways. So how are you leading that church to be disciples, to make disciples? So you, you kind of just allured to it, but perhaps now with, with all of the experience, everything that we just talked about, the way God has led you, your, your Christocentric focus now more than ever, um, how are you implementing all of that now at King's Cliff? Man, that is, we, I would love to do an entire podcast just on that. We will. Um, but I'll give you sort of, I'll give you the overview. Okay. So, so the first, the first thing is, is that, in, okay, I've read, I've read a number of books. When I transitioned here to Australia in 2014, we arrived in March of 2014, and we were coming in to a very good church. In fact, I want to say this, and I say this with humility because I believed this even before I arrived here. The Kingscliff Church is the best Seventh-day Adventist church I have personally ever been to. Mm. And I, I just want to say again that I'm not saying that in any self-aggrandizing way. Sure. This is not a product of my leadership. I felt this way before I ever got here. And it was a dream opportunity for my wife and I to come with our two sons and settle into this church. Because it was a church that was already, in so many ways, firing on all cylinders. So... In some ways, 
it's a little bit it's it's a little bit uh um it's a little bit easy for me to give an answer to this question because frankly I pastor an amazing church with amazing people in an amazing location with an amazing facility and so I know that the situation that I'm going to describe here that the principles apply anywhere but the specific situation and the specific application and the specific success that we are having is a product of the fact that we have an amazing group of people who love Jesus very much. I mean, this is, this is a church where if, if I could duplicate this church or if the Lord Jesus could duplicate this church all over the world, thousands of them, I mean, I just think that Jesus would come so soon. I think the work of God would be finished. Now, don't get me wrong. This church is not there. We're not there. We've not arrived, but it's just such an amazing church, Javier. And that's a shout out to the past leadership, Pastor Marcus Mandal, uh, who was the pastor before me. It's a shout out to conference leadership, Justin Lawman and Paul Geelan. Again, I'm a big team guy. Now it's Tom Evans, uh, Matt Parra. These are people that have helped to create a culture in the North and South Wales Conference and in the Kingscliff Church. There's a lot of great churches in this conference. But, and I've not been to every church in the world, so there's probably churches that are better than the Kingscliff Church. But of the churches that I have personally been to and been seriously involved with, whether as an evangelist or as a pastor, this is a phenomenal local church. I mean, I give it a, I give it an A. Okay. You know, well, a, B, tell me, C, tell me more I give, about that. give it an A. Tell me more about that. Why, why is it, why have you just elevated this church to, uh, to high expectations? Give us, give us a few reasons why. Well, how, what, help me to understand the question. Why have I, how, I didn't understand the question. Well, well, the first question was, how are you leading the Kingscliff Church to be disciples that make disciples? And, 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 and then as you were answering, you, you, you really talked about how beautiful and just how great the Kingscliff Church is. And so I kind of deviated a bit and I said, well, what, what makes it everything that you're saying that it is? Okay, man, that's a great question. Okay, first of all, it's very good location. So lo location is very important in terms of it's a good location. It it's truly is a community church. So it's a big one. We have a we have a population base <clears throat> we have a population base to draw from. Um, probably, if you drew a uh, sort of a ten mile radius from our local church here, you'd probably have I'm just going to throw a number out there 200,000 people, maybe mm -hmm. 250,000. Uh, probably 15 miles, you'd get 250,000. So we're right on the south end of what's called the Gold Coast. Um, right on the Queensland, New South Wales border. So the location is outstanding. So that's number one. Number two, we've got lots of young families in our church. So lots of <clears throat> young people, uh, lots of young families. So families in their 30s and 40s with kids that are from, you know, zero to 18. Lots of young kids. Um, another part of that is we have two excellent schools in the area, Gold Coast Community College, which is about 15, uh, maybe 15 to 20 minutes north, and Tweed Valley Adventist College, which is about 20 minutes inland. So two excellent supporting Adventist schools. Now, the first of those that I mentioned, Gold Coast Community College, is actually in Queensland. They're a Queensland school. We're in New South Wales, and Tweed Valley Adventist College is a New South Wales school. But we're, we have we have people that come from both schools and both communities and students that go to both schools. So we have an excellent school here. In fact, part of the reason I should just say this, when we came here, the reason that I came 
to this church was I wanted to raise my two boys who were 11 and 12 at the time that we moved here in a single location for the entire duration of their teen years. Mm -hmm. I was absolutely committed to not moving a single time. In fact, I actually made the conference sign a contract with me that they could not move me inside of 10 years unless I elected to be moved. Okay. Because I, I wanted my children to have a, um, I wanted my children to be raised in a single excellent local church where they could sink their roots into a local situation, a local community, a local Sabbath school and a local school. Hmm. And so I was just passionate about that. I, you know, I've just met too many people who, and man, we could talk, we could do another podcast on this. What is it like for a pastor to prioritize their family? Yeah. And from day one, I have, I have put my family number one. And if my wife was here, she's just in the other room. She would tell you that's true. My boys would tell you that's true. This is a season in my life right now where my boys, 15 and 16, well, almost 15 and 16, they are, they are my number one priority right now, along with my wife. So anyway, sure. the, the reason I say all of that is that we took this church because we had confidence in this church. We had confidence in this local school. We had confidence in this local community. So that's number one location. Number two, excellent schooling. Number three, um, lots of young families. It's a great community, man. We got people that come here who aren't even members of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, but they bring their children to this church because it's such a great community of people. Hmm. Um, so that's that's why when I say that it's a great facility, it's a beautiful facility. We've just uh, we're just in the process of refurbishing it, updating it, and it was great when I got here, and it's. I would say it was it was good when I got here, and now the okay. physical facility and the plant is is gone from good to great. Um, it's so, an outstanding church. I mean, and amazingly high quality people. And it's to be totally honest, and I feel I think every pastor should feel this way. It is a privilege to pastor this church. It is a privilege to do life with these people. It is a privilege, and I think if you communicate that as a pastor, that you feel blessed, you feel fortunate, you feel lucky to be in this church in this situation then your church members get that they they pick that up that's not something you have to teach them they catch that man our pastor thinks that we're really special our pastor believes in us our pastor loves being here our pastor wants to be here and it makes them feel even better about the uniquely positive and wonderful situation that they're in, whatever, not just here in Kingscliff, but anywhere you go, you should make that church feel really special, really special. So, so within the, the, the beauty of everything that you're telling me about Kingscliff, I'm going to come again full circle to the, the uh, original question there was how are you leading the Kingscliff church to be disciples that make disciples? How would you say that you're leading them to either continue or, and or start, you know, depending on the person's uh, journey. Okay. So I'm going to give you the short version. I'm okay. looking at my little timer here and I, I won't let myself go too long. So there's going to be several tiers to this. There's no silver bullet to creating a disciple making church. Okay. We're not there by the way. I would give our church in terms of discipleship making, I would give us a B. Okay. I think we're, we're doing well. We got, we got room to grow. Compared to other churches, they would probably look at us and say, you're an A. But compared to what, where I want to see us, I would give us a B. 
in certain areas a B plus, in certain areas a B minus. Okay, so number one, good gospel, scriptural, expositional preaching. I, hmm. I cannot overemphasize that the goal of the pastor, I, I hear people saying, oh, preaching is, you know, blase, preaching is going out. And this is insane. I, I, to me, maybe your preaching is going out. Maybe you can't keep people's <laughs> attention with scripture, with the goodness of God. You know what I mean? Like when somebody talks to me, like script, like preaching is outdated or preaching is, you know, pre-modern or, you know, doesn't fit with the postmodern. I just think to myself, man, I'm sorry. The proclamation of the good news under the power of the spirit will never go out of date. Never, ever. We can modify it. We can change it. We can, we can accommodate it to culture in culturally sensitive ways, whether that's through audiovisual or through illustrations, but the expositional preaching of the word of God with Jesus at the center, man, you cannot overstate the importance of good biblical gospel preaching in your local church. So that's number one. Okay. Number one. And, and I want to say this. Your preaching should be intentional. It should be directional. And I don't just mean individual sermons being intentional or directional. Have a sermonic goal. Have a sermonic calendar. Have a plan. You know, where, take a look at your church. Assess your church. Where do you want to take your church? So I'll give you an example. In our local church here, when we arrived, we have amazing people. But the level of general biblical literacy in my local church, and I think they would be happy with me saying this. They, they wouldn't love it, but they would agree with me. So spiritual and religious enthusiasm and passion was high, but biblical literacy was low, below average. So one of the things that I saw immediately is, you know what? I can't just show up here and start preaching advanced theological themes. I can't just dive into stuff that really scratches, you know, where the theologically erudite and the, the biblically passionate are itching. No, I got to start basics. So we preached, um, the second series that I preached in this church was a year-long series on the Old Testament. Hmm. One year through the Old Testament. We preached 52 sermons through the Old Testament because if you don't have a grasp of the basic flow, the narrative flow, and the great stories of the Old Testament, the New Testament is going to have considerably less impact, considerably less punch and power. So, so just as an example, I could see in my own church, passionate spirituality was high. Biblical literacy was low. So I say, you know what? If I'm going to start talking about things like discipleship and things like ministry and spiritual giftedness, I'm going to have to raise the level by the, by the power of the Spirit I'm going to have to raise the level of biblical literacy in this church. Hmm. And so I would say to my local church, look, one of my goals in being here for the next whatever it is, five to 10 or 15 years, is going to be to increase our biblical literacy so that every person knows Scripture and knows it well. So that's a goal. Now, you might come to a different church, a different situation, a different district, and you have a very high level of biblical literacy. Okay, well, then your sermonic calendar and your sermonic goals and intentionality is going to be different. But in my local situation here, a big part of creating a culture of discipleship was getting people to understand Scripture, to love Scripture, to be passionate about Scripture. Okay. So that's number one. Number two, our church and our local conference here are big practitioners of NCD. Are you familiar with NCD? 
Yeah, natural uh, natural church development. Yeah, natural church development. So the the conference president that brought me on here, Pastor Justin Lawman, just an absolute man of God. I, I love that man with all my heart. He's the kind of guy I tell people. He's the kind of guy that you run into burning buildings for. I mean, this guy is a <laughs> follower of Jesus. He's an amazing human being. And so when he gave me an invitation to come and pastor this church, I was like, absolutely, brother. I would love to work with you. He's now, I tell people he's now gotten promoted because he's no longer the conference president. He's gone back to the local church. He was promoted to the local church. There you go. But he was in, you, uh, he was the conference president here for the first two and a half years of my ministry here. And he's a real passionate advocate of NCD. And I, I won't go into too much detail here for people that are listening and who know about NCD. Uh, great. And for those that don't know, you know, especially if you're a pastor, I strongly urge you to look into it. Okay. But basically NCD is just a diagnostic tool that has eight criteria that allow you to assess the relative health of your church. It's not just a Seventh-day Adventist thing. It's interdenominational. It's, it's any denomination can use it. And the NCD survey and the NCD team and the NCD mode uh, of doing ministry has basically said, look, we've identified these eight criteria for a healthy church. And you know what those are. Holistic small groups, passionate spirituality, gift-based ministry, effective structures, etc. So when I arrived here, I took an immediate look at the NCD scores. Well, this was amazing because now I have an actual metric, a, a evidence-based data-based metric to gauge my church. What are the needs of my church? And our church, our local church here, scored lowest in holistic small groups. Of the eight metrics, our lowest marker was holistic small groups. Hmm. So I was like, okay, great. This is something we're going to need to grow here. And I was really passionate about small groups, very um, passionate about investing not just in a church service, uh, but in community. So number two is having some kind of diagnostic tool. And I know there are other tools out there. I'm a big fan of NCD. I love it. It has been great in our local church here. Okay. Um, so if, if, you're, if you're doing NCD, you know, I recommend yearly NCD evaluations. If you're not doing NCD, then you should be doing some kind of objective diagnostic tool so that you can know, hey, where are we, where are we striking out? I mean, when I look at our NCD report, there's a lot of things that this church is doing very well, but I don't pay a lot of attention to the things we're doing very well because those are the things that we're doing naturally and natively. I like to go, where are we failing? Where are we dropping the ball? Where are we striking out? And when I first arrived here in March of 2014, the church, its weakest area was holistic small groups. So we then implemented, and then now this is number three, two forms of small groups. Okay. One is educational and the other is community-based. Hmm. Okay. Now this would take quite a little bit of time to explain, but I can give you the very short version. Okay. We have what we call growth groups, mm -hmm. which are basically Bible study groups and recreational groups. Those are growth groups. So those are like the classic small group that you think of getting together to uh, study the book of Romans, uh, doing a book reading club, um, then we have recreational things like tennis or photography or woodworking. So these are like the sort of classic small groups. When you think of a small group, we have small groups, we call them growth groups. And our big motto in our growth groups is 50% content, 50% contact. <laughs> I like that. Uh, that's the nomenclature. 
Yeah, I've, I've come up with that nomenclature here. I say, look, we're not just here to teach content in our growth groups. We're here to grow together. And so we're here for contact as well as content. Hmm. And so that's why you can have a tennis group. We have a, uh, one of our growth groups that we run as a tennis group. We have a cycling growth group. We have had a running growth group. We've had a woodworking growth group. We've had a photography growth group. We've had a surfing growth group. These are, none of these are textual. They're not scriptural, but they are spiritual. We communicate to our growth group leaders that even a surfing group is a spiritual group. We, I, I totally reject this idea of a, of a radical differentiation between the so-called secular and the so-called sacred, mm-hmm. right? Everything is sacred if we view it through the lens of a gift from God and an opportunity to worship and praise God. So we do a surfing group, man. We're going to do that surfing group to the glory of God, and it's going to be spiritual. We do a photography group. We're going to do that to the glory of God, and it's going to be spiritual. We do a woodworking group. We're going to do it to the glory of God, and it's going to be spiritual. In addition to our more expressly spiritual groups, things like book clubs. Um, I do one called Exploring the Epistles, where we study through the epistles of Paul. Um, we have a, a women's ministries club. So some of our groups are more recreational. Some of them are more content-based. But in all of them, our growth groups, we say 50% content, 50% contact. Now, we run these groups. This is key. And this is basically I'll, I'll, I'll recommend this. Read the book, Activate. Okay. So the book, Activate, is titled An Entirely New Approach to Small Groups. Uh, It's written by Nelson Searcy and Carrick Thomas. Mm -hmm. This book, about 90% of this book, we modified a few things because the academic calendar is a little different in America. The school calendar is different in America than it is is in Australia. This is an American book. We modified the calendar system a little bit, and we modified the length of the groups a little bit. But I read this book, and I totally bought into the philosophy. I was like, I get it, and why, why many fail and some succeed. And so we basically, I could spend a lot of time talking to you about it. I'd love to do another podcast on it. But the short version is we implement our growth group strategy pretty much in accordance with what Searcy and Thomas do in the book Activate. So, it's like so semester, if you know that book. Semester-based small groups. Exactly. So semester-based small groups, we actually do quarterly-based small groups. So we do four quarters. Um, of course, four quarters, that makes sense. Yeah. But we actually take one of the quarters off Okay. as a rest, like a breather. So we have our, our growth groups run nine weeks. So three nine-week terms and then a rest, three nine-week terms. And between the nine-week terms, you have a two- to four-week break, depending on the academic calendar here. So you have to follow the academic calendar because if it doesn't, especially in our church here with so many young families, if it doesn't follow the academic calendar, you're just not going to get participation and you're not going to get buy-in. So if you're trying to attract young families, you've got to cooperate with the school calendar. Sure. So those are our growth groups. But then we also have what we call life groups. And the model for our life groups is doing life together. And our life groups are really simple. And again, there's nothing revolutionary here. We didn't, we didn't, you know, create some new amazing structure that nobody had thought of before. We just put something into practice with modification that works really well for our local church. So life groups is we take all of our elders. So in my local church here, we have 14 elders. And every elder oversees a life group. Okay. 
Now, again, the key about this, and this was probably one of the smartest things that we did, and this was a real game changer for us, and this might be a game changer for somebody listening in. Rather than what I've heard, I've met churches that have done this before, and they've divided their church up into groups or parishes or whatever you want to call it, and they do so often geographically. So they'll say, oh, well, you live on the west side of town. Well, these other people live on the west side of town. Okay, so now you're with them. Oh, you're on the north side of town. Okay, well, you, or you live in this suburb. We broke from that. We didn't, we didn't like that model. And hmm. frankly, this was not my insight. This was the insight of one of my church members, an amazing church member named Karen North. And her model was, why don't we take groups of people that are already kind of connected to one another, already kind of hanging out, and let's create a formula. Now, the formula that we created is not exact, but it's pretty close. And the formula goes something like this. I don't have it right in front of me. This is just off the top of my head. Okay. But our formula goes something like this. Four families. Okay, this is a life group. So a life group is made up of four families, two to four singles, and then two uh, uh, families and or singles that are on the fringes of the church, whether they're uh, falling away from the church, they're no longer in regular attendance, or they're people that are affiliated with the church, maybe through the local school or through uh, um, some other means, and then two other people that we are reaching out to, so evangelistic. So, so the life group has a formula. You got X number of families, X number of singles, X number of fringe people that we're trying to pull back into more regular fellowship and X number of evangelistic outreach contacts. So in other words, evangelistic prospects. Hmm. And so then what we did was, is we went through intergenerationally, and this was, I think, one of the keys. Rather than putting all the young people together, all the old people together, we tried to create an intergenerational dynamic where we took those four to six families and those four to six singles, some of the groups have as many as six families, some of the groups as few as four, so that every life group is essentially the same in terms of its basic structure. Now, you might be saying, okay, what do the life groups do? I've got my elders. They're, you know, every one of them oversees a life group. Hmm. And what we do is we tell them, we want you to have not less than monthly communication with every member of your life group, preferably weekly. Okay. Now, that communication can be a conversation, it can be a phone call, it can be a text message, it can be an Instagram message, it can be a Facebook message. Uh, we don't care what kind of contact it is, but just some kind of contact, monthly at a bare minimum, weekly is far preferable, right? So do they, do this, most of our elders want, go ahead. Do, do these life groups, do they actually meet or just the 14 elders um make contact with them. I mean, they make contact with each other as well, right? That I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued by these life groups. Okay. So the life groups meet. Now, this is one of the other strokes of, of brilliance, and I wish I could take credit for this. I mean, I'm, I, I was a part of creating this, but it, it's not all me. I, I, I couldn't even take credit for very much of this at all. But because we're a team and because I believe in getting a bunch of people to the table and coming up with something, I just want to give a big shout out to my local church and the elders and the team for coming up with this. So here's what we do. In our local church, we get a lot of visitors. So on, in my church, we'll have between 400 and 450 on average on a Sabbath morning, of whom not less than 20 and as many as 
50 or more will be visitors. Wow. Okay. So we have a, one of our guiding principles and something that we're very passionate about is having a vegetarian meal every Sabbath, almost every single Sabbath. We wish we could do it every Sabbath. But basically, having, having a vegetarian meal four Sabbaths a month for uh, any visitors that come. So now what you do is, is you, you create a schedule where you've got your 14 life groups, or if you have 12 elders, it's 12 life groups. If you have 10 elders, it's 10 life groups. Five elders, it's five life groups. You get the idea. And what we've done is we've just created a schedule where on a rotational basis, you are rotating through three life groups will get together and have a life group lunch on a given Sabbath. Okay? Hmm. So that's in addition to once a month we do a whole church fellowship meal. So that's the entire church once a month. We call it Let's Do Lunch, and we have a themed meal, whether it's a curry or a uh, haystack meal or uh, Mexican beans and rice, whatever it is. So we do that once a month. We call it Let's Do Lunch, and the whole church pitches in. We do it out on the church lawn, and we invite everybody to come. We even invite the community to come to a free vegetarian meal. Wonderful. So we do that once a month. So on the, on the weeks where we're not doing that, and my advice is to set that up as a regularly occurring thing. So it's like the first Sabbath of the month or the second Sabbath of the month or whatever. The last Sabbath of the month is when you have your big meal. So you set that up on a regular schedule. On the other weeks, we have our life group lunches, which is not the whole church, but it's a significant percentage of the church. So if you have three life groups and each life group is made up of approximately 30 people, you're going to have... 60 people that could see, you know, in, uh, excuse me, 90 people, about 100 people that could technically come to that life group, but not everybody always comes. But let's say you get 75% turnout from your life group and then any visitors that come to the church. And we do those basically every other Sabbath. Depending on how the schedule works out, we'll occasionally have um, a Sabbath where we have no lunch, but that would probably happen only about... I'm going to say between six and eight times a year. Okay. So that's when your life groups are meeting. Okay. Your life groups are meeting in terms of structured organizationally, they're meeting during those life group lunches. And if you can just imagine, you've got 14 and we switch the groups up. So week one, it's these three groups. Week two, week two, it's these next three groups. Week three, it's these next three groups. Week four is fellowship meal. Everybody. Now we're back to week one different three groups. So we're always intermingling the groups. And it just takes a little bit of organization, a little bit of scheduling to get everybody doing it. It's actually not difficult to do because when you add up the total status that you're doing a life group lunch, the way on those life group lunches, the whole church is not coming. It's just that life group, those three life groups. Right. So everybody else knows this is a week off. You can invite somebody home for lunch. You can go over to somebody else's house. You can you know, go to the beach for a picnic or whatever. But we always want to have something where our life groups are getting together on a given Sabbath and where visitors are always welcome to a free, excellent, awesome vegetarian meal. So in, in, in essence, you have uh, the elders that oversee these life groups and then the life groups uh, meet um, on certain Sabbaths with other life groups and then the visitors. And then once a month, you have the community, I guess, vegetarian meal for the church and the community if they'd like to come as well. That, that, did I get that right? 
You got it exactly right. And I'm going to throw in one more wrinkle for our life groups, and this is the game changer. Okay, this is a game changer. Man, I, I, I just, I'm just almost tears of joy are coming to my eyes as I'm telling you this. So we had a real burden and a real passion in our local church. Uh, we had a North New South Wales conference held a leadership meeting a little while back, and it was all based on serving humanity and people from all over our conference went to hear Pastor David Jameson. I think that's his name. From um, I, I think from Canada. Is that his name? Did I say it right? Yes, you did. Okay. So they went and heard Pastor David Jameson give a talk on community outreach. And I've actually been to his church, that, that church there, uh, Church in the Valley in British Columbia. I mean, it's phenomenal. It's, it's a dream situation. I mean, it is absolutely amazing. And one of the things I love about their method of ministry and their passion for ministry is they're just so into service. And I'll just say a quick word on that. More and more, our churches need to be thought of as service-based communities, not just worship-based communities. We, we can also be worship-based communities, but we need to be seen by our local community as service-based communities who also worship, not worship-based communities who also sometimes, occasionally, but not very often, serve. Right? Absolutely. So, Absolutely. So that, to me, that's the paradigm shift that David Jameson was advocating. And I had a number of our church members went there, and they came back fired up to serve humanity. So we got the church together, and we held one of our growth groups. Remember, our growth groups take place over nine weeks. Rather than doing individual growth groups, we did a joint growth group where the church came together on Tuesday night, and we had a, a, a growth group where everybody was there, but they broke up into their life groups, right? Their elders groups, we call them life groups. And we discussed every life group coming up with a, and here's the game changer, a service project. Yeah. So now you have not just the fellowship at meals and not just the fact that you're united by the elders keeping touch with your life group on a, at least a monthly basis and hopefully a weekly basis, we challenged every life group to come up with a service project. And we spent six weeks reading through this really great book that was published by, uh, produced and published by the North New South Wales Conference called Serving Humanity, outstanding little book. And we would read a chapter from the book and then we would discuss in this whole meeting where the, the whole church is coming together. You know, we were getting amazing turnouts to this meeting because people were really passionate about a service project. So now what happens is, our life groups, and this is, I, I just can't emphasize this strongly enough. This was the game changer. They're, they're not just doing life together. That's our motto. They're serving others yes. together. And so they came up with their own. This wasn't something where the pastor was like, hey, we need a group that does this. Hey, we need a group that does this. Hey, this was totally organic, totally grassroots, totally lay-driven right, started by the church, and they got together in their own groups, and one group said, hey, you know what, we have a real passion for the homeless community in our area. There's not a lot of homeless in our area, but there are some, and so they have a ministry to the homeless where what they've done is, is they've gone to a, two local laundromats, they have spoken to the laundromats, and they have leased those laundromats from, uh, they've basically gone to them and said, we want a period every week for two hours where the homes can come in and do their laundry on us for free. And our life group will come in 
We'll help them with their laundry. We're here to talk. We're here to chat. But can we get the laundromat for two hours once a week? And the laundromats are like, absolutely. So that's one ministry, a, a, a laundry ministry to the homeless. We had another life group that said, you know what? We want to deliver flowers, big, beautiful, fresh bouquets of amazing flowers with a little thank you note and a little encouragement to the local private hospital, John Flynn Hospital. So we've got this amazing group. Of, I mean, we've had as many as 30 people. We get 60 bunches of flowers. Every group gets one or two bunches of flowers. And they just literally, we've, we've arranged this with the hospital. They just go to those wards. And now we've done it so regularly. We do this on a monthly basis. We've done this so regularly now over the last about five months that the hospitals expect us to come on a certain Sabbath. Beautiful. And they're just like, oh, yeah, that, that group from the Kingscliff Church is coming in to deliver flowers. And we show up, you know, it's just so amazing. And then we had another uh, uh, life group that said, you know what, we want to put on a date night for our local community. We've got a, a really good working community here. Uh, it's an affluent community. And we said, we said, you know what, people are missing out on family time. We're going to create a date night. And so we did music and we did uh, a beautiful dinner, all three advertised to the community. And we invited sons to bring their daughters, or excuse me, what am I saying? Fathers to bring their daughters to a community date night put on by the Kingscliff Seventh-day Adventist Church. Hmm. And it was totally free, vegetarian meal. We advertised it in the community. And that was one of our life group's service projects. And I could go down the list. We have about eight, I think it's eight or nine right now, because some life groups have joined with others. Some of the projects are so big that they join two life groups together. A quick question, just to, if you allow me to interject. As I'm listening to you as a pastor, I'm, I'm thinking, wow, this is, you know, structuring the life group, structuring the grow groups. That, that takes a lot of time and effort and, and just the amazing things that the life groups, as you're explaining, are doing is incredible. Um, is there somebody that's overseeing all this? Now, I know your 14 elders are involved, but do you have like a like a small groups pastor that, you know, you that him or her along with the team is the one kind of overseeing it? Or is it a group work? How, how is how is. Who's leading? Because normally, nine out of ten times, if not ten out of ten times, there's there's always somebody overseeing that the groups are functioning and going forward, and that they're actually doing life together and fulfilling the objective in which hopefully they're called to do. Which it seems obviously that is happening there. But is there somebody that's overseeing all that? Okay, the answer is yes. So. The growth groups are overseen by the pastoral staff, okay. and we have a growth groups coordinator. That's her name is Katie Bonello. She's our growth groups coordinator. She's a lay person. She's a teacher uh, at one of our local schools here. So she leads out. She's the growth groups coordinator in in consult with myself as a member of the pastoral staff and Pastor Joel Slade, who's my associate pastor. And then we've just recently, and I tell you, Javier, I am. This is such a godsend, such an amazing thing. We've just recently hired on a third member of our pastoral staff, mm. and his name is Lyndon Parmenter, and we brought him on as halftime executive pastor, okay. so administrative executive pastor, and then the other halftime, he is the administrator for Arise, because you have to remember, Arise functions out of our local church here from February to April, so okay. we get an influx of like 
50 young people from all over the world into our local church here, which is really a unique blessing. Um, and we, that needs to be administrated year round. That's a, that's a halftime job. It's actually a full-time job, but we, we treat it as a halftime job. So we've just brought on um, Lyndon and Lyndon is halftime executive pastor. So basically organization, calendars, uh, administration, communication, all of the sort of nuts and bolts that make the church work. Mm-hmm. And then the other half of the time he administrates a rise. So, but he's only been on for two months now. So this is like, I feel like I've just opened up the best Christmas gift you could ever get. You know, yeah. like I've, I have an executive pastor because my strength, as you might've imagined, is not, is not calendars. It's not organization. It's not scheduling. It's not internal communication. Those are actually all weaknesses of mine. Hmm. I have strengths, but those are not them. So, you know, I'm serviceable at those things. I'm not terrible at them. Well, I am terrible at some of them, but I'm serviceable at them. But now we have a guy who's actually not even pastoral trained. He's a businessman. Wow. And he's come on, not the theological emphasis. Uh, he's come on with an organizational emphasis. And we split his uh, salary half between our local church and half between the North New South Wales Conference because he's administrating a rise, which is a conference ministry. So in answer to your question, Life groups are overseen by the local elders and the pastoral staff. Okay. Growth groups are overseen by the pastoral staff, but especially Lyndon in his administrative role and Katie Benello, who's our growth groups coordinator. So yes, it's a it's it's joint. It's lay. I, you know, I'm trying not to use those terms, laity and clergy, but it's paid ministry and volunteer ministry jointly oversee the life groups and the growth groups. And frankly, the, the life groups are sort of self-policing. Like, because we have such excellent elders that we're really trying to train and disciple, and, you know, because we've created this culture of you're a minister, you're a pastor. You know, I tell the church, look, I tell my elders, I can't make 400 pastoral visits a week. Right. But you guys can each make a pastoral visit every week or every other week. And so effectively every week through the, through the pastoral leadership team, the eldership team, we're making contact with probably something like, I don't know, 60 to 80%. That's probably a bit high. Let's say 60%. I'll be conservative. We're making contact with 60% of our members through our life group every single week. And Hmm. in a month, it would be a hundred percent, which, which you can imagine. I mean, if a pastor had to visit 100% of his membership. I mean, how long is that going to take you? In a church of 400 to 450 in attendance, that's going to take you a year, two years. Right. But the life groups basically allow the pastoral team to be immediately aware of needs, situations, difficulties, problems, and not just that, but triumphs, you know, wins, uh, opportunities. Do you ever get, David? Go ahead. Do, do you ever get the um, and this this is a question that happens that I you know deal with where where um, hey I I want to join David Ashrick's group or I, I'm glad that the elder came to visit me but I really want Pastor David Ashrick to come and visit me and uh, you know in some in some local contexts you, you're not visited until you're visited by the pastor so do do you have some of that or um, can we say that 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 the, the the Kings Cliff Church is 
is maturing enough where they understand that that this is really the biblical model, which is what you guys are doing. Okay, so in answer to your question, to be totally honest, we do have some of that, but we're we're growing out of it incrementally. Amen. We're, we are trying to create a culture where a visit from the head elder or a visit from an elder, or frankly, just a visit from a church member, because a priesthood of all believers and every member of minister is just as meaningful as a visit from the local pastor. Sure. Are we there yet? No, we're not there yet. But through, and this goes back to the first thing that I mentioned to you, biblical preaching, teaching people what scripture says about ministry, about what the church is, what function and, and uh, role does the pastor actually have? And that's, that's just biblical education. And as the church is waking up, increasingly biblically literate, waking up to the role of the pastor, not as a priest, not as a mediatorial conduit for the grace of God. You know, my prayer doesn't count more than my head elders or that elder or that 16-year-old kid. As we create an increasingly biblically literate congregation, we are getting, we're getting wins in that area. We're getting more and more people that are, that are, that are getting it. Like, hey, and, and frankly, a lot of people just understand. Pastor David is, I mean, from sunup to sundown, man, I can be so busy doing anything. You know, you, you know that. I mean, come on, a pastor's job is never done. I, I could be totally busy answering only emails. I could be totally busy um, only giving Bible study training, totally busy only preparing sermons. But I'm trying to do lots of those things. And I think one of the things that you know, I do some things well and I do some things not very well. And I think one of the things that I do well is I know what I'm good at and I know what I'm not good at. And the things I'm not good at, I just don't do. I get people who are good at them and people who are really passionate about them to do them. I, I read a book, actually listened to it cycling. I listen to a lot of books cycling. So I actually, oh man, audible and, and uh, audio, listening to audiobooks is completely transforms the way that I think about exercise because I'll go on a two hour cycle and I'll, you know, in three bike rides, I've listened to a book. Yeah. And it wasn't that long ago yeah. that I listened to a book by Andy Stanley called 21st century leadership. I think that's the title of it. 21st century leadership. And in that book, Stanley makes this point and it's a point that I knew intuitively, but I, I needed to hear it. You know, sometimes you have an idea, but you need to hear it articulated. And he basically said, Hey, look, the problem with a lot of leaders is that they try, Try to be multi-purpose leaders, like a Swiss Army knife leader. They're trying to do everything, but a Swiss Army knife, there's really no such thing as a Swiss Army knife leader. Part of what makes you a leader, Andy Stanley says, a, a good leader in a certain area, is that you're really gifted. You have strength in a certain area, but just by the nature of, of human beings, if you're strong in one area, then probably you're not as strong in another. You might have even what you could call a weakness. I have no problem saying that I have a weakness. So what Stanley says is you need to figure out, you need to identify your two or three core competencies. That's his nomenclature, his language. Right. Identify as your two or three core competencies. And then everything else that needs to be done in terms of leadership, and in the case of a church, in terms of discipleship, in terms of mentoring, all of those core competencies that you do not possess, go find people that do possess them, right? And then you get into the whole Dan Collins, good to great. You get the right people on the bus who have core competencies that are different than you. Like I know 
what I'm good at and I know what I'm not good at. And right. for me, if, if I'm going to try and do everything in a local church, the church is going to get bottlenecked, not at my strengths. It's going to get bottlenecked at my weaknesses. So what I want to do is I'm going to, I'm going to give those weaknesses that I have, obligation I also find painfully difficult to do, but I got people in my church and people in my leadership team that eat that stuff, they get out of bed and they and I, it, that's like saying, I can't wait to eat shards of broken glass, you know? Yeah. I, I can't wait to stub my toe. You know, I, I, I'm just not wired that way. I'm a teacher. I'm a preacher. I'm a motivator. I'm, I'm an inspirer. If it comes down to brass tacks of schedules and calendars and organization, I don't got that. Praise right. God, I've got a leadership team that does have that. So anyway, back to Stanley. Stanley says, identify your two to three core competencies. Do that. He says, do what only you can do. And that's a big challenge for a lot of leaders, especially people that have a, a propensity to micromanage things. They think, no, if, if I want it done right, I have to do it myself. And I'm not a micromanager at all. As I've already mentioned, I'm, I'm very invested in a flat management style, man. I want as many people at the table as possible, and I want everybody doing what they do well and what they're passionate about, what they're gifted in. And so I know what my two to three core competencies are. And in the areas where I'm weak, rather than bottlenecking the church and rather than bottlenecking the discipleship process, I bring in people who have those competencies and who have those passions. And then now together as a team, you know, this is, this is just Paul's metaphor of the church as the body of Christ. You know, one is the eye, one is the ear, one is the hand, one is the foot. We all contribute to the larger benefit and edification and growing of the church where everything has to funnel through one superstar, one person, one, you know, big dog. Well, then the whole thing, it takes on a culture. It becomes a cult of personality. And I'm not about that. I'm not into that. I'm not about that. I don't want to be celebrated. I want Jesus to be celebrated. And we have surrounded ourselves here with a culture of people that want the same thing. Well, that, that's incredible, David. So I really appreciate you saying everything you did about what's going on in, in your church there at King's Cliff. Um, just the essence of preaching, the essence of assessing where your church is at, uh, the aspect of small groups, um, and just how everything is functioning there. Um, I want to continue to pray that God will continue to lead and um, do what he's already doing in even greater fashion there for you. So I really appreciate all the details that you've given and just taking the time and being part of this episode. Um, so just that to, for us to close off, um, two last questions. One, uh, number one, you, you mentioned that um, Nathan Brenner is one of your top three preachers. Who are your other top two? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well. It's really funny because people make fun of me because I will say that such and such is one of my top three favorite C.S. Lewis quotations or one of my top three favorite Ellen White quotations or one of my top three favorite Martin Luther quotations or my top three favorite sermons or preachers. And, and I, I never actually have the other two in mind. It's just my way of saying one of my very favorite. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's fair. Well, we'll leave that one there. Um, but, I, but I'm happy to tell you, I'm happy to tell you that I absolutely love the preaching of Dwight Nelson. 
uh, he's been a hugely positive influence in my life. Um, preaching wise, I love the preaching of Nathan Renner, as I've mentioned. Uh, his um, church there, the Discover Life Church in Sonora, California, I listen to their sermons regularly. Uh, I also am a big fan of Ty Gibson's preaching. Um, Ty is, to me, one of the one of the foremost communicators and thinkers, uh, as are Nathan and uh, Dwight in the Seventh-day Adventist Church today. Um, I'm also, uh, it's funny, I've, I've just recently been listening to some some preachers that are, are new for me and um, podcasts that are new for me. And I've always been a, friend, a fan, for example, of Robbie Zacharias and sure. um, N.T. Wright. I mean, these guys, I just love the way they communicate. I love the, the things that they say. Um, so, yeah, those, those would be some of my very favorite. I love the preaching of um, Wesley Knight and, um, of course, C.D. Brooks. I mean, I was I cut my teeth on the preaching of C.D. Brooks. Uh, preachers just don't come better than that. Sure. And uh, there's others as well, but, but uh, those would be some of my most favorite preachers. Okay. So my last two questions here, I, I promise. Um, what? No problem. What would the current David Asterix say to that young David Asterix back in the late 90s? Uh, what, what would be the number one or two things that you would want to tell that younger David Asterix? Okay, now let me just ask a question of clarification. So on like spiritual things or just about life experience? Like, do you mean just like in terms of pastoral ministry, preaching stuff, or to do with parenting and, and being a husband and just life, you know? I mean, like one of the things I would have them say is buy Apple stock <laughs> and buy Google stock. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a good one. That's definitely, buy a lot of Apple stock, right? A lot of Apple stock. <laughs> um, and then you can- Because presently Presently, I was just going to say, presently I own zero Apple stock, zero Google stock, zero Amazon stock. In fact, I don't own any stock that I know of. So uh, <laughs> that's one piece of advice I would give myself, but uh, I, that's probably not what you're looking for. Sure, sure. It's, well, it's like, a, it's like a friend of mine recently told me that he bought Bitcoin um, a while back. And, um, it, 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 and but he sold it. So he really didn't make any money. He says, if I would have had the Bitcoin that I had then now, I would be doing really, really well. Anyhow. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, tell, tell me like one or two things that you would tell the younger David Ashrick, um, things, you know, something that you have learned now that you would want the younger one to do so that, you know, uh, he would know. Um, both spiritually and just the practical aspects of life? Oh, man, that is a great question. I love that question. That's the question that really, these are the kinds of questions we should be asking ourselves, Javier. They're the kinds of questions that require us to look reflectively and intelligently, hopefully intelligently, on our lives. And, uh, you know, who was it that said the, the un... Um, examined life is not worth living. It was Socrates, right? Or Plato, one of them. I think so. Uh, so I, I love questions like this. I can, I can sometimes feel a little paralyzed by them because I, I don't find it, I don't find trouble, I don't find it difficult to come up with one or two things. I find it difficult to limit it to less than a dozen things, if you know <laughs> what I mean. Like I just, I would tell that guy so many things. Um, but to limit it, you know, a, a couple of things I can say for sure. One would be 
that I think early on in my experience, I became a, not intentionally, and, and it wasn't even nefarious. Uh, it certainly wasn't, there, there was no negativity in it. There was no ill will in it. There was no, um, there was nothing sinister about it, but it's just the way that it happened. That, that earlier in my experience, I became, as I think a lot of young, impressionable Christians do, I became a reflector, a mere reflector of other men's thoughts. Hmm. Um, and and I, I say that because fortunately for me, the men's thoughts that I reflected were people that I regard regarded then and for the most part regard today as godly men. In other words, praise God, he chose for me good mentors, godly mentors, um, people that were exactly what I needed when I needed. But I know that in the case of um, some of the early mentors in my experience, I, I think I took on board some of the things that they were passionate about, some of the things that they were really fired up about at face value. And I became identified with them and with those things in ways that on later reflection, I thought, you know what, David, you were just parroting. You know, you were just parroting what you've heard them say. You've not, you've not thought this through. You've not studied this out. You've not been critical or evaluative in your assessment of these various positions or these various perspectives. And again, th these are not anything, this is nothing terrible. I'm, I'm not suggesting that, you know, that there was some sinister or terrible thing, but it was just a matter of taking things on authority. And I think now the the real passion that I have is not to take anything on authority that's not inspired, that doesn't come directly from scripture or some inspired source, right? Something that, that God speaks through scripture, I can take that as authoritative. Something that that a mentor says, I take on board and I evaluate. Hmm. I critique, I analyze. and I, I think that's just a part of maturation. You know, one right. of the things that Violet and I are really to teach our boys. In fact, I, I'm planning to write a book on this in about five years time. Um, we've not just raised our children. We're very passionate about discipling our children. I want to write a book on discipling, how to disciple your child. Hmm. And one of the things that I've really tried to do in discipling my children is to teach them that their dad does not know everything that their dad is, is doing his best, but I'm also on a journey. And I think, especially because I came in on the, you know, the far right end of the theological spectrum, I didn't even get into that. But when I was first, those people that owned that vegetarian restaurant, they were independent Seventh-day Adventists. So they, were, they weren't even attending a conference church or a local church. They were attending home churches, and they were extremely critical of the organized church. And so when I was baptized, man, I came in through a, you know, extremely right wing, independent, conservative is even, isn't even the right word, like fanatical yeah. um, version of Adventism. And I was sort of programmed by those early moments, those early 
experiences to become, in the words of Ellen White, just a reflector of other men's thoughts. And that, you know, there's nothing wrong with being mentored. There's nothing wrong with being discipled. There's a lot right with it, in fact. But for me, I took on board things that I had not critically or evaluatively thought through. And one of the things I'm trying to tell my boys is, boys, Jesus, you can put your total trust in Jesus. You can, what Jesus says, what God says, that is 100% reliable. What your dad says, I'm doing my best. I'm trying to be a great dad. I'm trying to be a great husband. I'm trying to be a great follower of Jesus. But you need your own experience. You need to think for yourself. You, you need to not just take what dad says because dad says it. And I know that I've got a strong personality. I know that I love my boys very much and they love me very much. And, and they look up to me and I'm always trying to deflect and say, look up to me insofar as I'm looking up to Jesus. Hmm. And I think, and I want to say this, I want to say this with humility. I think some of the mentors that I had in my life could have done, especially early on, a better job of exercising humility, self-distrust, and that deflection that I'm describing, deflecting, hey, it's not about me, it's not about my, it's not about my program, my way, my theology, my conference, my, and they might not have even ever said that, but that's what I picked up. You know what I mean? Like I picked up this guy, and I could give you names, and people would know these names, but I'm not going to do that. Like, you know, I thought that guy has his act together. That guy knows what's going on. I believe what that guy believes. I follow, you know what I'm saying? And I just kind of got absorbed into that. And, and fortunately, um, probably in about, probably not long after I arrived in Michigan. So beginning in about 2002, 2003, 2004, that period was a real formative period in my life. My second child was born. I was coming in the early 30s. And, you know, you just start to look around you and just become more mature. Again, it goes back to the having uh, old heads on young shoulders. And I was growing. I was maturing. So the first thing I would say is take your mentors for what they are and not for what they're not. Hmm. Take everything from them that you can. Be blessed by them be educated by them, be inspired by them, be instructed by them, but realize that they too are sinners in need of a savior and that even a mentor can let you down. Even somebody that you look up to can let you down. And the only person that we can all look up to is Jesus. That's the first thing I would say. Well, that's, that's, that's phenomenal. I think you have, have said it well. And man, I, I really appreciate um, you taking the time to really just open your heart, your mind, your soul um, with us and just um, talk to us from your heart. And um, I can't thank you enough for that. Um, I think this is part of what the Restore podcast is about, telling people's uh, story, um, both individually or in a church or both. And I think in this episode, we have that. Uh, so again, I want to thank you for that. Um, my, my very last question, it's probably the most profound question. And those who listen to this podcast know what's coming. It's normally the most profound, deepest questions of all. Um, this is possibly, I think this is possibly going to be the longest podcast episode in the history of the restore podcast, which is absolutely, you know, fine. Um, but with that said, 
Uh, my question to you is, David, what is your favorite food to eat and when are you going to eat it? <laughs> well, first of all, let me just thank you, Javier, for being on this podcast, man. I've had a blast. You know, you said it would be about an hour and we're over two hours now, but <laughs> I don't know if, if, if it's the same there in Florida, but I'm having a blast, man. I've, I've loved this. I've been very open with you, very transparent with you. I have nothing to hide. And it's been really awesome to just, I mean, I'm a sinner like you, so I do have things to hide. But what I mean is in terms of like, I don't, anything that I've learned, I want everybody else to learn it. Any idea that I have, I want to share that idea. If it's a good idea, great. If it's a, if it's an idea that can be made better, then help me to make it better. If it's a bad idea, tell me it's a bad idea. I just, I really believe in this idea of just the spreading of information. I hate that proprietary it belongs to me. It's not yours. I've got it figured out. You don't. I, that doesn't appeal to me. And so just to be open and honest and talk freely and conversationally with you, Javier, it's, it's been really awesome. So I want to thank you for inviting me on the podcast. I, I've been a little long-winded, but hey, you, you knew what you were getting when you asked David Ashrick on the podcast, right? No worries, man. No worries. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for that. All right. So food. Um, so I actually have a... a very strong opinion about uh, foods. <laughs> My favorite food in the world, in terms of a variety of food, is um, Indian food. Okay. Indian food is number one, and then there's a three-way tie for number two, which is Thai food, Mediterranean food, and Italian food. Okay, but wait, and, wait. Uh, Indian food for me is a ten. Go so, ahead, go ahead. So, so, so before I let you go, okay, so Indian and Thai, so. So when you come down, uh, when we're recording this, we're recording this here in um, the end of uh, beginning of December. So uh, most uh, people know, at least from, again, our community of faith, that you're going to be coming down for the pastor's convention here in the Southern Union area. Um, and so uh, we got to make sure that we take you. You're coming to Orlando. This is uh, we, we have a ton of places here. Uh, so so Indian is your first and then Thai. So just remind me. That um, if you have time, I will personally thank you by taking you to either Indian or Thai. So just uh, you can you can hold done me. deal, mate. Done deal. So, uh, but I'm, when it comes, in. When it comes to in. Indian, what particularly is it that you like about Indian food? Like what 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 uh, dish? Oh man, my favorite Indian dish is palak paneer, which is the spinach cheese dish. I don't always eat it with the cheese, but the spinach dish over rice with a little bit of naan bread and some raita which is uh the yogurt the cucumber yogurt nice with a mango lassi oh i mean just up it and you throw a little dal makhni in there with some chana masala some alu gobi on the side and you finish it off with a galoob uh, what do they call them galoob jamun yeah or whatever that little dessert thing i mean i get that meal in my stomach and I just want to go into a food coma because that, that, that food just, and it just, it knocks me out, but I love it. Sounds good, man. Well, hey, brother, I appreciate it again. Thank you so much. We look forward, uh, at least for us down here, we look forward to having you in January. Thank you again for your time. Um, it, was, it was fantastic, and I hope that it will be a blessing. I know that it will be a blessing for those that will listen. So blessings to you there in Australia. Travel safe. And um, thank you again, man. Thank you, Javier. Could, could I just have a quick prayer for you and your ministry in the podcast? Absolutely. Please do. 
Father in heaven, I want to thank you for this amazing time I've had to spend with Javier. Lord, I just feel really connected to him. We're separated by distance, but I just want to thank you for him. I want to thank you that he's using his energies and his talents to do something for Jesus, not just in his pastoral capacity, but here with the podcast. Father, bless the Restore podcast. Bless Javier's ministry, his pastoral ministry, his ministry of discipleship, his preaching ministry. Father, bless him as a family man and as a husband and just just put your spirit upon him and within him. And I look forward to eating that Indian meal together, Father. So please keep us safe. Keep us in the center of your will and just grow our ministries, grow our churches and grow the ministries and churches and communities of faith of those that are listening in. Father, we look to you. We trust in you. We believe in you. And at the end of the day, when all is said and done, Father, we're going to lay our crowns down at your feet and the feet of Jesus, and we're going to say all the glory goes to God, all the glory goes to the Lamb. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you so much, David. Appreciate it. Thanks, Javier. Well, I hope you were blessed, challenged, and inspired by my conversation with David. Again, I want to thank him for his time, openness, and willingness to do this episode. Please make sure that you share it this episode with your family and friends. As people travel during the holidays, they can listen to this one or any of the other ones on our Restore podcast. We look forward to releasing more stories that will help you restore the vision, restore the mission, restore the church in 2018. Until then, friends, may God bless you during this holiday season. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Thank you for listening to this Restore podcast. We hope you've been blessed. Don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss any of our inspiring episodes.